I'm Justin. I'm Marius. I'm Gabby. I'm Mark. I'm Dylan. I'm Bushi. And, and this, this is Comicverse. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to yet another episode of our Comicsverse podcast. As always, feel free to check us out on comicsverse.com for in-depth comic book analysis. We have a culture section as well, web comics, and hours and hours of podcasts. And for the first time ever on a Comicsverse podcast, I'm your host, Marius Tienkamp. Yes, first podcast I'm hosting, and I'm really excited too. And I had the amazing opportunity to come all the way from Dortmund, Germany, and visit our wonderful CEO, Justin Alba, at the Comicsverse headquarters in New York. At this point, I'd like to thank you again, Justin, for making this possible. Justin, thank you so much for letting me stay at your place. Who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> you should probably know I've been sleeping at your place for two weeks now. Who are you people? I don't know anyone who sleeps at my place for two weeks. That's, I would need uh, another week before I would need to learn their name. That's probably worrying, but let's go on. No, I'm just kidding. I am not a schlumpa. I would just like to say that you knew I was going to work it in. I would just like to say thank you so much, Marius, for coming and for being a guest in my house. I've had a grand time. Oh, thank you. So did I. This little bit of of America to you know one of my favorite Germans. Thank you. Who's uh, your my other, favorite German. Who are your other favorite Germans? Um, who are my other favorite? Heidi Klum. I know she's the only one I know. Merkel. Um, that's really who? that's really sad. Angela Merkel. Uh, yeah, I call her Angela, so I can feel more German. Angela yeah, I think it's pronounced social network. Angela. They got, they got Angela. The twins. Angela. Angela. Yeah, Angela Mer- Merkel. And um, shout out to Angela Merkel. I like her. And uh, who else? Uh, favorite the Germans. twins. The twins who got gypped off of Facebook from the social network. They were German. I didn't even know. I also like. I, um, so. I also am a fan of Alaric. If we're going to ancient times, Charlemagne has German blood in him as well. Uh, through the Franks, and I would rock just like band to, the Scorpions. Totally. Anyways, getting back to the topic. Today is very exciting for me because not only do I host my very first podcast for Comicsverse, but we also get to talk about actually one of my favorite topics, which is ethics. Or in this case, to be more precisely, we're going to be talking about or we're going to be shedding some light on different ethical conflicts or ethical dilemmas and how they are being portrayed in superhero comics. And also, we're going to think about what one or two philosophers would have to say about them. And it's gonna probably maybe gonna be pretty controversial and we have some like really fairly interesting dilemmas and comic books to look at and yeah i'm sure it's gonna be i'm sure we're gonna have a lot of strong opinions on this podcast so as always if there's something you disagree or agree with just let us know in the comments and we're really interested in what you have to say about this or social media since you guys don't leave us a lot of comments but we read them on social media it's not just... that sad. I'm happy about it. <laughs> you can talk about it wherever you see fit. Engagement listener. with the public, yo. Yeah. However, joining me today as our co-host is, as I already mentioned, the best CEO in the world and an amazing friend, Justin Alba. Justin, how are you? I'm well. I wish I embodied any of those traits, frankly. You do, though. Thank you. And also joining us will be the amazingly productive and helpful Dallin Miller. Dallin, you're spending your t- summer in NYC as well. How are you enjoying it so far? It's great. I have a lot of fun going to Broadway, different rivers and islands. Yes. It's been great. I'm a little jealous. I didn't get like a direct question about me specifically. But I said you're the best <laughs> CEO in the world. I think that's enough. I know, but I didn't have a, I didn't get to say that myself. Okay, 
Continue. All right. Also joining us on today's podcast is Mark Hassenfratz, who just recently was on his very first Comicsverse podcast, Yay. which is our two-part podcast about Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force. Feel free to check it out as well. Mark, I think you did extraordinarily well on that one. What did you think? Tell us about it. I had a lot of fun on that podcast. It was great because Uncanny X-Force is one of my favorite comics in recent memory. And I'm really excited to talk about it again here because we, I don't think we got very far in terms of talking about the morality of yes. it. So this is this is a good way to dive into that again. So I'm very excited. Thank you. And then, of course, talented actress and podcast veteran Gabby Beans is also joining us today. Gabby, first off, I just want to point out that you're a legend for becoming a vegetarian in Bavaria, Germany. For, so for those of you who don't know, Bavaria is kind of like the German-Texas equivalent. It's very traditional, very conservative, <laughs> and very, very obsessed with meat. Gabby, how are you? I'm doing very well. And um, yeah, I'm glad those sausage days are behind me. That's that's interesting, but we're going to be talking more about that in our second last segment. And finally, Skyping in today is Marc Bouchard, also known as Bushi, who I spent half a week with here in NYC, who I bet will be very excited to announce to our audience that the comic he's working on now has a release date. Mark, tell us about it. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'm uh, working on this comic called Hell on My Couch, and it features a depressed or i guess i'd say mentally ill sociology professor who ends up meeting the devil at a satanic gathering and the devil is just kind of just crashes on his couch for the next however often the comics coming out september 28th and i'm really stoked on it i have a bunch of people at comics verse also working on it k is working on it but yeah uh we're six issues in so number one's coming out september 28th Woo. awesome yeah. and you got a facebook page too right yeah, it is called Hell on My Couch, and you should give it a like. Uh, it's mainly just people I know and, like, five real Satanists that I don't know how they got that page. But, yeah. That's mm -hmm. interesting, though. Definitely uh, check out their Facebook page and check out uh, Bushi's comic as soon as it's released. So, getting into our first segment, which is called Would You Kill a Child to Save the World? Utilitarian and Kantian Approaches. So, the first comic that we're going to take a closer look at is the Apocalypse Solution arc, first story arc in Rick Remender's run on Uncanny X-Force, as Mark already mentioned. Gabby, would you like to give us a quick summary of why we chose this particular book and what exactly is going on, which situation our heroes find themselves in? Sure, so we find the X-Force basically encountering the decision of whether or not they should... Well, you kind of said it in the title, didn't you, Marius? The, uh, a a bit, Apocalypse yes. has been reborn or has been resurrected by uh, the Akaba cult. Am I, is that right? Yes, that's perfect. And uh, they are sort of trying to brainwash him to fulfill his destiny to subdue all humankind to usher in the age of um, mutants ruling the world and it's kind of unclear as to whether he has some sort of inborn like instinct within him that is going to be elicited by the, these followers of this cult or if there is a chance that he could be rehabilitated and, and live his life as a you know productive and non-destructive member <laughs> of the world and so um, we have Psylocke, Wolverine, Phantom X and Archangel who are sort also Deadpool and, and Deadpool obviously Deadpool who are going to try and, and infiltrate the cult of Akaba's sort of ship and potentially kill uh, reborn apocalypse 
Yes. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you. That was actually perfect. And, you know, it's kind of funny by the time that I got to know Justin a lot better, which was like a year and a half ago. I was a huge fan of this philosophical thought experiment, and it's called the trolley problem. So whenever Justin would introduce me to new people, I didn't know before he was like, Marius, you need to tell them about the trolley problem and hear what they think. So I got to know a lot of people, some of whom are actually here today, by having these like deep philosophical discussions with them first. So Justin, would you like to give us a quick introduction to the trolley problem so the trolley problem is i um wrote down some notes on this and i neglected to print them but the trolley problem is you have to think of it like this so you are on a trolley aka a train and on this train there are two tracks that the trolley or train can take on one of the tracks is five human beings and the other track that we are headed towards, if we take no action, is a track with one person on it. There is a lever in this train, aka trolley, and you can pull that, and if you pull it, you will only run over the one person versus running over the five people. Did I explain that wrong? No, you explained that right. I mean, we're usually standing outside the trolley, but I don't think that makes like... Oh, we're standing... Okay, I thought... I, I imagined we were on the... It was like the movie Speed with Keanu Reeves. That's what I was... It was you too, Gabby, yeah. So anyway, so... If you do not pull the lever, you will run over one person. If you pull the lever, you will run over five people. The question is, what are you going to do? And then after that, what happens if you are on some sort of overpass looking at the trolley go under you on its tracks? There's a Zaftig man there uh, with you. You can throw him onto the tracks and like, prevent the train from killing somebody. But this man, he's just watching pigeons. He's just you know eating a burger. Right. Uh, he doesn't know what's going on. But you, if you push him, you will save people. And if you do not push him, the people or is it one? Per, is it, it's five people. It's five people. The five on people the tracks, will die. Right. So it's still five lives versus one life. Thank you for explaining, Justin. That no was problem. perfect. Thank you. So. Well, as we might have all noticed by now, there are a lot of similarities between the Apocalypse Solution finale in which our characters have to kill a child to save the world and the trolley problem. And in both situations, someone has to make the decision whether he can justify sacrificing a single human being for the greater good or for the lives of the many. And in your opinion, does the comic succeed at implementing an allegory for the trolley problem into the narrative and deliver like believable emotional responses? Mark Austin Frotz. I think it does a great job of implementing the trolley problem in the sense that it raises the stakes of the trolley problem because it's not just a person you're killing, it's a child. So there's that yes. added element element of innocence and this kid's a blank slate and he's just a kid. So it's it's more about killing another person. It's about killing a child. So I think that's a great way that it took the trolley problem and said, well, let's make this an even more difficult decision to make. So that's what I really liked about it. Dallin? I think it does not fully implement the trolley problem because <gasps> I think it does pretty well at bringing up this tough choice that's similar, but it's different because it's not a fast-moving train that can't stop. Like, the trolley problem is much more inevitable. Like, you see a train that's about to kill people, whereas with a child, it they might not kill anyone. But there's also the, the implication that if you don't kill the child, this child could grow up to kill millions upon millions of people. So kind of. Gabby, do you agree? Do you disagree? I think that the scenario that's presented in the apocalypse solution is definitely similar to the, you know, the ethical conundrum in the thought experiment of the 
trolley problem. But I think that one way that the apocalypse solution complicates the situation of the trolley problem is the notion of like in the trolley problem we're kind of looking at neutral lives right like one neutral life versus five neutral lives and like the net sum of these lives but the interesting thing about i think more interesting for me in the apocalypse solution than the question of whether or not it's right to kill a child to save the world is the question of can one know the value or like the potential the the potential ramifications of a life and the question of if this child can this child be rehabilitated is this child truly a blank slate or will do they have some inexorable destiny that if left unintervened like will wreak havoc on everyone else and i think that that's one thing that the trolley problem doesn't necessarily address and i don't think that's necessarily what the trolley problem is looking at but it would be interesting to say like if you had five normal people on the tracks versus like kim jong il like who like who would you kill you know what i mean and like can you make that kind of value judgment that's actually a really great point about the determination of the lives that we're talking about and also of the child that we're talking about great that you brought that up gabby and we're actually gonna be tapping more into that later on justin I very much agree with Gabby in that I think that the Apocalypse Solution did a really good job of making, taking the trolley problem and making it sort of more complicated, right? And I think I had sort of similar questions. We know that the boy Phantom X killed is a clone of Apocalypse. They know he's been, quote unquote, indoctrinated into this life of hate and, you know, reads Apocalypse's diaries or whatever the hell he's reading in it. And, you know, that he's, you know, that he's gained that outlook. But I sort of had the question, the quite same, similar questions to what Gabby did. Can this child be rehabilitated? What does it mean that he's been, quote unquote, indoctrinated? Just because he's been indoctrinated and he's a clone of Apocalypse, does that mean he's going to grow up and be Apocalypse and kill all these people? I don't think we know that. And I think that it's dangerous to assume that just because he's been indoctrinated in a certain way, that without any sort of, you know, reprogramming in a positive way that to say that there's no way he wouldn't turn out to be apocalypse that's very true and but i still think that it's also a question of like the risk uh, whether you want to take that risk yes oh yeah i just wanted to add too if i was on x-force i would have killed him but all right being not on x-force i would i feel differently we're gonna get into the open discussion about whether we would have killed the boy or whether we would have pulled the lever in the trolley problem later on we're also gonna get into the determination discussion later on but first bushy did you want to add something well i think i my my comments would be best saved for the open discussion all right then let's get it on with. So in order to better find out whose side we're on here and also whose side the characters are on here to better interpret their positions, we took, a uh, preparing for this podcast, we took a look at what actual philosophers had to say about this matter. So I think at first it's important to realize that we're dealing with two opposing ethical ideologies here and those are utilitarianism and deontology or more specifically Kantianisms. So uh, in beforehand, we read into 18th century uh, British philosopher Jeremy Bentham and his uh, an introduction to the principles of morals and legislation. But we also dealt with the standpoint of famous German philosopher Immanuel Kant. So Dallin, briefly, what the hell is a utilitarian and what's the Kantian moral position and why does any of that matter? Yeah, so utilitarianism comes from Bentham and it's where like in the trolley problem... 
there's always the solution with the least casualties should be taken. It's always about the consequences. It doesn't matter if you're pulling a switch or pushing someone off a bridge or if someone wants to do nothing, like they think you always have to take the action and make sure that just one person gets killed and not five. And then with Kantianism, it's instead of the results being more important, it's about the method and it's about it's about a person's own moral compass and that like different situations like whether you're doing the switch or pushing someone off a bridge determines which situation is better and right it's all about your intent and not about the results and which is necessarily the better result right thank you thank you so much Dallin, for pointing this out as Dallin quite correctly said in utilitarianism it's all always about maximizing the utility which means maximizing the the well-being of everyone affected and minimizing the pain of everyone affected and there's not really any rule you can't break in utilitarianism it's all at least in actual utilitarianism you can you should do whatever is best for the greater good whereas in kantianism kant is very well as you said he's not really interested in the consequences of your action but he's interested in whether you show that goodwill as you said the moral compass and stick to the rules and well yeah thank you so much for pointing this out and now dear listener i know that there's a lot of information at once and a lot to process especially after we just introduced the trolley problem to you but bear with us it's gonna be a lot more clear once we get into the open discussion well first off What are your overall impressions of these two positions? Anything you could identify with more or disagree with? Just your thoughts. Yeah, Mark. I feel like utilitarianism sounds a bit more... Well, initially it sounds a bit more like robotic. Like if you had a machine to make this decision, it would pick the one that causes the least amount of casualties, whereas Kantianism is more about... It's a more emotive response to the problem, I think. So those are the two things that stuck out to me. But in terms of utilitarian utilitarianism, Marius, one of the first things I read from Comicsverse was your piece on Spider-Man and utilitarianism. Oh, thank you. And that's that's one of my all-time favorite pieces from our site. And that's one of the pieces that oh, I... Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, I talk I talk about it whenever someone brings up... When, whenever someone is like, what's Comicsverse? I'm like, well, an example is philosophy and Spider-Man. So that reading that article kind of humanized it for me a little bit more. Yes. And we're going to be talking about that more later. So yeah, those are my initial impressions of the two schools of thought but i'm really happy to know that something as that first comes off as cold and unfeeling as utilitarianism can have some for lack of a better term life put into it thank you that's that's a great point you're bringing up because this is something usually people tend to perceive utilitarianism as because there's uh, well as you said there's a lot of maths involved and it can make that seem very dehumanizing but it has uh, in the we're gonna get into this later by the way our next segment is gonna be all about spider-man so it has a very humanitarian aspect to it depending on who tries to act that out who's next Bushi. So when you put like put it in terms of numbers, like in terms of human, when you put numbers in terms of human lives, I don't know. I feel like like especially with the trolley problem, there's not really any time to like investigate into their backstory and like see who they right. are. Like if you, if I, I mean, I guess if I was presented with a choice, like save one person or damn one person or save five or damn one person to save five, it doesn't seem. I don't know. I feel like utilitarianism is the way to go. Right. 
on this one. Justin, did you want to say something about that? I did. I just wanted to point out that I this is my favorite kind of podcast that we do because I learned so much about philosophy and ethics. I literally knew nothing on the subject of modern philosophy. And it was really interesting reading about all these people. I particularly like Bantham. Yes, oh, is it not Bentham. modern philosophy? Oh. Yes. Uh, is it not modern philosophy? Oh, oh is, sorry. Yes. I, I wasn't sure. I was like, did I make an academic faux pas? Anyway, but this is my favorite kind of podcast that we do that uh, we do because I get to learn about all this kind of stuff and it was really cool. I actually was surprised to find that the two philosophies were at odds with each other because I saw things that I connected to personally in both. I think it's... I don't know what the word is. I guess it was, but maybe I want to use the word empowering to think that when I do something and think about why I'm doing it, and if I do it for the right reasons, that according to this one school of thought, that it's a good thing. And I definitely connected to utilitarianism because one thing I liked about what Peter Singer was saying is that a lot of us aren't doing the things that we can do to make the world a better place. And it's, you know, there's a call for action in there. And, it is. And yes. that way I really enjoyed that one. All right, Gabby, you want to say something? I want to go back to the question of whether or not we can trace the characters of the members of the X-Force, like how they react to the situation that they're presented in a, whether or not they can, it can be, it can be described as Kantian or if it can be described as Oh, that's the, next, that's the next question we're going to get into. Oh, never yes. mind. Thank then you I so won't much. say that now. All right. Dallin, did you want to add something about the two school thoughts? Well, I mean, just definitely when I first read them, or when I just think of them, I definitely identify with the Kantian more. But I definitely like think utilitarianism makes sense. I like what you said, Mark, that that at first it seemed cold, but like there can be really human. Like even though it's right. logic and like math, sometimes that logic can be very emotional, or like or part of it's born out of emotion. It's just like this is what has to happen. Right. Is there any, like, I, w I would be really interested in hearing, like, the reasons why the Kantian perspective would appear uh, would appeal more to you? I'm just all about the good intent, no matter what the result, just trying to... All do. right. Gabby? I would say that I sort I, I can apply either philosophy depending on my understanding of the situation sort of because i feel like when we talk about going back to the tr trolley problem if you are looking at these people and you're not really sure who they are and you you save one or you kill one instead of saving five like what if that one person was the person who is going to develop the cure for cancer or you, you know and so i say like i think that in situations in which the variables are like really cognitively avail available to me then utilitarianism appeals to me because i feel like i actually can understand like the moral implications or, or like the ethical or larger reaching implications of my actions but in certain situations where we're talking about like global scale like macroscopic sort of movements i think that everything sort of collapses into the kantian perspective because you're you're trying to you're trying to make your good intent and act right. it upon the world and you and without having like omnipotent knowledge i don't know if you can actually ever like calculate perfect utility there's actually i wanted to bring this up because i thought it was really really interesting there's actually a sort of compromise between the or i wouldn't say compromise between the two uh, opposing viewpoints but uh, it's a method to make utilitarianism more applicable which is called you rule utilitarianism in which actually Bentham's student uh, john stuart mill brought this up in which you set some rules of thumb for example in the most in the most situation it's not going to be utilitarian to murder a child so i should go 
I should wake up every day knowing that I won't murder a child. So I should just stick to those rules in order to raise utility. What do you think about that? Is that a good compromise? Absolutely. I think that kind of um, encompasses my personal viewpoint. Okay, that's cool. Mark, then Justin? I just wanted to respond to the Kantian good intent thing. I'm a little suspicious of good intent because no one thinks that they're the bad guy. I don't think there's... I mean, like some of the like histories biggest monsters have done what they did because they did it in their best intent and because they justified their actions to themselves. So I think that good intent is just too flexible of a term to use. And that's why I think that utilitarian philosophy makes more sense because right. it's it's historically a lot of people have justified doing some really, really terrible things because they did it for God and country or what what have you this is actually interesting because then on the other hand there are a lot of people who have done terrible things for the greater good i'm sorry if anyone wants to bring up that point but do you think that this is a problem that could be that could be solved by sticking to the kantian rules do you think the kantian rules are, are pliable and strict enough to prevent that stuff from happening i was going to uh, riff off your like terrible things for the greater good things But I mean, like the greater good, it's very, it's like hard to define again, like where it comes. I mean, like, I guess because we're dealing with literal like life and death, it's a little bit easier to because obviously death is bad. So but like one example I wanted to bring up is um how in The Astonishing X-Men, Professor Xavier, spoilers, Professor Xavier keeps the, da the danger room as a sentient being and Professor Xavier keeps it like trapped in the danger room. So that the X-Men can train and become like the saviors that they have to be. Yes, that's that's a great point, actually, because you I, I mean, Xavier would argue that that is something he did for the greater good. But it's also mm -hmm. it's always the question of how you try and apply utilitarianism. And that's actually a, a re we're going to get into that later. But that's actually a really great problem with utilitarianism. Uh, anyone else want to add something or should we move on? All right, moving on to the next question. All right, so now that we all know on which page we are, and now that we got a little bit more into the two opposing standpoints, I think we can start debating on, on which side of the conflict these characters stand, especially characters like Psylocke and Archangel. Do they use any typical arguments for either of the ideologies? Can we consider any of them a typical utilitarian or typical Kantian? Mark, House and Fronts. I think that just the existence of X-Force is very utilitarian because at one point Damn. because at one point Wolverine says we are taking on all of this evil and suffering the five of us as individuals so the rest of the world doesn't have to and just him being able to justify what he's doing in terms of numbers I think is very utilitarian and I think that's why X-Force exists is to have the burden placed on the shoulders of less than half a dozen people instead of having these horrors inflicted upon the entire world. Bushi? I think that's I think that's also really integral or integral to the like Wolverine's whole thing is that like Wolverine has been around for a really long time. So he's sort of figured himself out and it's sort of like he's kind of like this is a curse. He's just like nothing has really gone that well for him and like he just lives like the way he lives like fighting on all these superhero teams all at the same time and just like like and constantly just getting disintegrated and like molecularly built back up because of his healing factor like he puts himself through this immeasurable suffering always it's always for the greater good. Wolverine is just always like 
Yeah, except it, we'll get to the like that later. But like generally, like Wolverine does not do what he does for himself. Yeah, and I think an, another big part of why he's able to do all of that is because he realizes that at his core, he's not a good person and he's okay with that. So he's okay with shouldering the responsibility of all of these really brutal things that he does. And he's been able to justify it to himself in that way and in the way you just described. I would argue just that, um, like, I, I would agree that he doesn't think he's a good person, but I would say that, like, the stuff he's doing, like, makes him a good person. Yeah, that makes but, like, sense. Wolverine would never admit that he's a good person. In utilitarian yep. terms? In any terms. In any oh, okay. terms at all. I, I also think that him being around for so long has resulted in a lot of self-hatred and the, the weight of the responsibility of all of these lives he's taken. And, and the fact that he's numb to that makes would keep, prevent him from being like, yeah, I'm a good person. Right. Justin? Yeah, I think the existence of X-Force is kind of like a slippery slope. And they explore that in comics, definitely. And it's one thing that makes Cyclops seem more like Magneto by even making the decision to have X-Force. And it's what kind of sets him on that track to becoming that mutant revolutionary that we see later on in comics. I would argue that there is, is there a term that's like unkantian or non-Kantian or something? Uh, canyon. <laughs> oh. You're not Kantian. You're Canyon. Oh, oops. Canyon. I thought, wait. No, I'm no. totally joking. Oh my God. Cause I, cause Kant I, and can. It's okay. a pun. <laughs> oh oh my gosh okay i got Ouch. it i'm actually embarrassed that it took me that long to get it because i had that thought today and i was like no justin don't make that joke but mark you pulled it off i could not have done it so i just wanted to give you props thank you thank you but yeah i think that x-force is a slippery slope but i also think that there's something that uh goes against what kant is saying and that so one of the themes that i saw in the apocalypse solution is that these people, Phantom X, Psylocke, Archangel, Wolverine, Deadpool, they have this sort of killer instinct in them and they have this right. sort of need to commit violence and they have this sort of unquenched thirst for violent things or, or to do harmful things. And they're choosing to do, they're choosing to use this need to do quote unquote bad things in the positive and utilitarian way by being an X-Force. And I think that that, is kind of interesting, but I also think that, yeah, I also think that, like I said, it's a slippery slope, and I think using Cyclops as an example of someone who made this decision is interesting because we can look at it through the lens of that being utilitarian, being about the greater good, but what if we see a character who is more villainous make this type of decision? You know, it would be interesting in comics, right, if they kind of came out and maybe killed like all of the X-Men and got rid of like all of the heroes who could like stand in their way. Uh, of course that wouldn't happen. That would like take away all the drama. But I think that, that if we look at X-Force in the hands of a villain, that it could be looked at really differently. That's interesting. And well, now that we've evaluated that X-Force is a very utilitarian invention, I want to say, I think we have to uh, keep in mind that Kant has his very strict rules and that he is very strictly against against lying, against killing, against basically all of that. And I don't know, I just think it's interesting that uh, X-Force in itself is so utilitarian, but in the situation in which it depends on on basically the fate of the world versus the fate of this in, uh, arguably innocent child, that some of them are actually really not that utilitarian. Gabby, what do you think about that? Right. So just to sort of go backwards for a quick second, I think that the 
one another aspect that just shows how utilitarian X Force is is the fact that they are no they are not concerned. I feel like um, more so than most of the other X Men with the idea of good intent or with right. the idea of a goodwill towards others and like enacting that goodwill in the world. They're they're there to you know carry out missions and to have very sort of specific aims, which I think is very deeply utilitarian. But then when we were thinking about if we can trace the characters' ideologies back to Kantianism or back to utilitarianism, I immediately thought that maybe like there was a Kantian influence in Psylocke when she decides when she makes the change or, or when she decides like no we're not going to kill this child and I'm going to protect him but I really don't think that it's particularly like I, I mean I don't I'd be interested to hear what everyone else thinks about this but I don't necessarily think that that's a decision that's motivated by goodwill or a notion of like sort of like a normative normative ethical codes of like not killing a child or something like that i think that i don't know i i it feels more like of a i don't know who was saying this before but it feels more like of an emotive response of like seeing the innocence in his eyes and seeing the potential for good and and that he may not you know that they're that by killing him they will essentially be damning him to or punishing him for a crime that he may not necessarily commit but then there was another question that i was asking which was would it simply would it be more like the, the better utilitarian decision to kill the child simply because he has the potential to become apocalypse even if they see that he's not already that evil that was something i was thinking. all right i i feel like the second question is a really good question for our open discussion uh getting back to your first question about psylocke uh responding emotively versus psylocke responding out of belief for the kantian moral philosophy well i mean that's exaggerated but it's just interesting that you would bring that up because it's a really interesting question to ask whether this is like a code that she has well that she has taken on for herself that she should never kill an innocent child for something she uh, that the child has never done so that's a rule she sticks to no matter the consequences which is very kantian or if that's merely an emotive response and if you I would like to hear your opinion on that. And if you think it's an emotional response, do you think that that should play a role here? I was happy with that shift in a way, but I think it was for sort of like a rationally convoluted reason. Yes. And I simp- and I think that what that moment speaks to for me is that the, you know, Archangel and Psylocke and, and Wolverine, when they see the child and they see like the potential danger of that child they recognize the potential danger in themselves and that it could be argued that being you know having killed many people you know ostensibly for the greater good but perhaps in some more like morally ambiguous situations that they themselves could have been killed for the same reasons when they were children because they were different because they had the potential for great violence and when they see the child knowing full well like what he's capable of but also knowing that it could go a different way they sort of lose their will to to just carry out the execution all right the others what are your thoughts emotive or rational decision should play a role i saw this as psylocke just trying to be a basic a basically decent human being i feel like she has that instinct because of all of her involvement in x-force and she's clearly not comfortable with a lot of things that she's done so i think that in defending 
Apocalypse's life, I think that she was trying to also redeem herself. So I think that there were some very personal and definitely emotional reasons for her to do that. So yes, I would agree. This is a very emotive response to this problem. All right. Anyone else got something to add about Psylocke, Bushi? I think we can we can like talk about this all day, but when it comes down to it, it's kind of hard. Probably not speaking from experience, but I imagine that it's hard to kill a kid because their yes. eyes and stuff—they're all like little and cute and whatnot. And um, oh. yeah, like they—it's kind of—it's just—it's just hard. Mark, uh, just a quick little fun fact that I learned from my one of my biology professors is that the reason that kids are little and cute and we focus on things like their eyes is because they've evolved to look cute so that we want to protect them. So Darwinism, there you go. Baby. I mean, I, I think I think that kid apocalypse looks kind of adorable, like despite his gray skin and red eyes and blue lips. I think I think he's still looks like a little rapscallion. So. All right. So. Moving on, I just want to talk about this real quick. Do you think there are any characters that bring up, like during the discussion, that bring up these utilitarian points? I would, I personally would think about Archangel. What do you, th what do you guys think? I think Deadpool brings up some very interesting. He brings a very interesting perspective to the table, and this is something I talked about in the Uncanny X Force podcast. And I'm a huge fan of Deadpool, but my favorite thing about him in this arc is that he's the only person to see Apocalypse as just a kid. Everyone else sees him as great potential to do great evil or great potential to not do great evil. And Deadpool is like, he's a kid. We need to treat him like a kid. Yes. He, he needs to be cared for. He needs to be taught right from wrong, regardless of his powers. Because as Gabby said, you know, you could probably justify killing all of us for the same thing. I think the worldwide scale that's implied with the level of power that Apocalypse possesses definitely makes a difference, but I still think that's true in that, you know, you could kill Deadpool, Wolverine, any of them for their potential to do evil. So, yeah. Great point, Gabby. I would really appreciate if someone could recap this conversation for me because it's unfortunately the details of it are a little bit foggy, but one of the first part one of the first scenes in in the book wolverine is talking with phantom x and he's like oh you're not like basically the the gist of it is he's like well come on like what do you stand for and phantom x is like i'm a mercenary like don't expect anything good from me and i'm really he actually ends up being the most redemptive character absolutely is the funny thing and that's what i thought was really interesting and it's also a question when i you know knowing that we were going to talk about utilitarianism is the is how to what extent does the mercenary logic either cohere or like not cohere in this context with the utilitarian logic like doing whatever you need to do to get something done for us not you know obviously mercenaries are doing it for money or whatever but like in utilitarianism can that be seen as a kind of like ruthlessness or a kind of mercenary logic i definitely think there is a ruthlessness to it because whenever you I mean, I've, again, I've read a lot of Deadpool comics and there are a lot of mercenaries in that comic and they're always like, look, the guy's paying me to do this. That's all I care about is that he's paying me. So I'm going to do it. I think that's the real power that lies within money because, you know, you watch TV or movies about crime shows and you're like, how how did this person do this thing? How could they possibly stoop down to this level? It's They were paid enough. They were paid enough to do it where in their own personal mindset, they were justified by that sheer amount of money. and that's the the real scary real world power of the mercenary logic 
Justin, you wanted to bring up another point about X-Force. Yeah. Yeah, just a question. So we all kind of are like, yeah, X-Force is kind of utilitarian. And so, yeah, I just wanted to like show of hands, like who is against the death penalty? I am. So... Right. So you so can't see one, this, but two, everyone's three, four, five, six <laughs> raising their hands. And five of us are against the death penalty. I'm the only one not against the death penalty. I'm only against the death penalty in Texas because I just can't seem to get it right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm against it in many, sta- many states in the United States. But anyway, so I guess how do we reconcile the fact that many of us are against the death penalty, but we are pro X-Force? Because uh, in many cases, I don't think any... Wow, that's the first time that question has ever been asked in the history of the society. It's a good anyway, question. Thank you. But how can we be for X-Force and against the death penalty? Because how do we know everyone X-Force is killing is you know going to go out and do bad things? They're preemptive. Can I answer this question first? Sure. For me, it's always been... Well, as, as it may like have occurred to some people on this podcast and some of our listeners, I'm a utilitarian, but... In the case of the death penalty, I don't. I'm not gonna say that there are not a lot of uh, situations in which the death penalty could be utilitarian. But that being said, that's not how laws work, or that's not how laws work in our society, or and maybe that's not how laws would work in any society. So when we're talking about a law, I'm a rule utilitarian still i feel like the consequences are still important to me but that being said the consequences would be best without the death penalty it would be most utilitarian for for everyone basically also i've always thought that since we don't know what comes after death me being an agnostic person it's always hard to give humans the ability to judge over that except for a situation where it uh, is to prevent even more deaths so in the case of x-force you got psylocke who's a telepath so you can narrow it down more and you can like from situation to situation you can narrow it down to how likely it is that it will increase uh total utility that being said in the case of the death penalty, it's uh, it's something federal. So first off, I want to preface this by saying I have very complex feelings about the death penalty. When you asked for a raise of hands, I was kind of like, eh, shaky, I'm not so sure yet. But as far as justifying, how can we justify it being against the death penalty when supporting X-Force? I think one of the reasons is because it's a comic book. I feel like it's important to remember that this is fiction and that in reading fiction, a lot of times we get estranged from our own personal thoughts and feelings. So I think that, I mean, this is this is a George Carlin joke that I, I kind of like, which is, uh, I was a bad kid, but I straightened out at 18 when I realized that the state had a legal right to kill me. That's great. Which may not be the best justification for the death penalty, but I think that there is something very, when you read like Hobbes's Leviathan, I think that like, that that kind of fear can be used to control people, but at the same time, is that a society we want to live in? I'm not sure. The other thing that makes me think I'm against the death penalty is that what if we find out this person is innocent after the fact? That's the yes. big... And also is not the goal of prison to rehabilitate someone so that they can eventually rejoin society. Again, I'm not totally sure where I stand on it. This is an ongoing conversation I'm having with myself, but these are the, the main points that I've addressed in my discussion all right with I, myself i am really happy about the discussion we're having right now and we could go on about this for hours to come uh that being said we need to move on and we still got a lot of segments to get into so uh, silence concluding concluding the death penalty discussion everyone just finish like the sent just give a one sentence like answer gabby 
the death penalty. Oh, I I can't. I'm sorry. I can't give a one sentence. Get get just. Le- I'm le- no. <laughs> Dylan. My response to death penalty question was that I'm against the death penalty and the X Force. Damn. Justin, so. Justin. Okay, my sentence is with that. <laughs> it's just at opposing the question. Like, how do Psylocke used to be an assassin, Lady Mandarin? How do I know she's gonna? Be, how do I know I agree with her? Like, just because she reads someone's mind and says, "Oh, that's their perspective," or "This is why they're doing it," how do I know that she's going to feed me that information without her own bias, whether it's known to her or not? That's all. That's interesting. Bushi, did you want to add something, or do we get on? Weirdly, I uh, make me sound like a total tyrant, but I one of the reasons I oppose the death penalty is uh, it's too easy. Like there are crimes that people need to be punished for, and that's not really a pun like that much of a punishment yeah, when you compare it to like point. sitting a, in a hole. That's a really utilitarian point, actually, Gabby. Also, this just made me your point, Bushi. Just made me think about like where does like does the punishment of the death penalty come from like this religious idea that you are being like sent into the afterworld like huh. or, or so you know like i'm wondering like what like the cultural and historical yeah. like origins of the death penalty are because if you think about it like okay justin's gonna answer my question but i'm gonna phrase another question blah, 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 blah. so well, because if you think about it like in terms of social utility of what like what function the death penalty serves i don't think they're that the death penalty is a great social deterrent. I think that the current state of our like of incarceration in America like shows that it's just not. And secondly, I feel like if you're thinking about what the function of imprisonment and and punishment on the sort of government scale is, it's it's either to rehabilitate people who are capable of being functioning members of society or just keeping deeply homicidal people out of society. I don't think killing anyone really helps fulfill either of those aims. And as we know in the States, death, keeping people on death row is incredibly expensive and pointless. All right. I think we really, I'm so I'm, I'm really, I'm really not happy about having to end this discussion, but we need to move on. But we can I just say where it came from? One sentence. It's hard to do in one sentence. I mean, well, sorry, Mary. Okay, but if we look at one of the first code of laws that we know of uh, in human civilization, we have Hammurabi's Code, and that's where the concept of an eye for an eye comes from. I think it was very much what Gabby said. It was social deterrent, but the answer is that it's more complicated because the state and religion were intertwined. So it's difficult to say it was just religious, um, but at the same time, I, I think it was more of a social deterrent. There was more than one sentence, but thank you, Justin. I'm just kidding. All right, moving Hashtag on. Hashtag Marius Sass. So we still got some questions left before we wrap this segment. So we should probably get through this fast. So keep your answers short. Now, as we all know, and as we've mentioned, you're right a now, tyrant, Marius. Okay, I am not a tyrant. I, at least I'm not the worst German tyrant in history. No, I'm just kidding. I am. He was so, Austrian, though. That's the, true. I'm sorry. The one you're referring to. He was um, Austrian. Which one are you referring to? Hitler. How, how who else? You hear, you hear German tyrant. Who do you think of but Hitler? Okay, continue. Incredible. No, I'm just kidding. So, as we all know by now, uh, Phantom X chose arguably the utilitarian approach and shot Kid Apocalypse in the head. However, the consequences would actually turn out to be far more disastrous than uh, anybody on X-Force would have thought because the kid's death actually led to Warren, aka Archangel, becoming the natural heir to Apocalypse. Do we interpret this as a critique of utilitarianism in terms of uh, there's always consequences that or ramifications that are incalculable? Uh, what do you think the author's position on utilitarianism and Kantianism might be? Gabby? I would agree with 
the statement that you proposed, Marius, that whether directly or indirectly, the author is sort of problematizing the idea of um, utilitarianism. And it, it links back to what I was saying before when we were just generally talking about the schools of thought. Without perfect understanding of all the effects of every variable in any given situation, I think that acting in what you think is the way that like has the most utility it's still you're still bounded by your subjective and understanding of the situation. So I think that that that's problem a good point. Yeah. Anybody else want to add something? Mark, I, I think that this is Rick Remender's strength as a writer in that you think that this is going to be a fairly simple argument, just logic versus emotion. But he really does do a great job of complicating that because in first reading it, I was like, oh, they're just going to live, be able to live with themselves and just move on from murdering a child because how much more horrible is that than the things they've already done but that is really where the heart of the comic is is everyone dealing with this action in their own way that's very true all right so i think we're gonna move on to the next question we have which is about another comic we took a closer look at which is X-Men as Guardian Wars, in which uh, another very similar lives of the few versus lives of the many conflict kind of occurs. And the X-Men actually have sort of a debate between them because they get the opportunity to possibly end world hunger, wars, hatred, poverty, etc., etc., at the expense of the lives of some of their friends and family members. Do you see any parallels between the way the two dilemmas are being portrayed and represented? Do you think there's like a, a bias against these kinds of conflict or a bias against utilitarianism or Kantianism? I definitely think there is a bias because with all of the work that Comicsverse has done on X-Men, one thing has become clear and that thing is that X-Men is a family. So I, I feel like that's qualifying the trolley problem is that it's a lot harder to kill that one person when that one person is someone you've known for years and fought alongside and someone you've really come to accept into your circle, your family, your heart. I think that definitely adds a lot of bias against utilitarianism. All right, Gabby? I absolutely agree that what we, we see these moral dilemmas sort of boiled down to like personal ethics versus sort of greater ethical calculations. And, and it causes a lot of strife and it and it's and it's very compelling as a reader because it's not very easy to say at least for me personally it's not easy for me to say oh i would definitely do it this way or the other way which is very um nice to read yeah i think as a reader it's always easy to say we would take that one easy and logical opportunity but kind of uh, adapting the character's point of view it's always it's, it's a hard decision to make. I mean, admitted, we, we would all struggle with having to sacrifice family members. Dallin, I'm sorry, I didn't see you back there. Uh, did you have something to add? I think I was just saying, we we're going to say that um, I feel like X-Force does pretty well at being sharing both sides rather than I think it overall it kind of has a bias against utilitarianism. But like in the next volumes after the apocalypse solution, like they have to kill Dark Angel and like that's that's killing the one friend rather than instead of or and saving the many unlike the as as guardian wars though i think those two contrast each other well 
All right, moving on. I think it might be time for a more open discussion about both the trolley problem, but also the moral dilemmas in comic books that we're seeing here. So because we've already talked a lot about what we personally think about this, I think we need to keep this short. Just anybody who wants, throw in your opinion. Would you pull the lever? Would you kill the child? Would you sacrifice your friends and family members? And if so, why? And then... If anybody disagrees, feel free to get into that, Dallin. I know that I personally would not pull the lever because I've had to make, not in real life, make such a drastic choice, but in a couple of video games, had to make the trolley problem choice. And I let many people die instead of killing one person. So, Damn. and I think I would do the same in the apocalypse solution. Uh, Justin would probably disagree, or would he? I, well, I wouldn't say I would agree or disagree, but I would just say that. If I had chosen to be on X-Force in Earth 616 or whatever it is now after Secret Wars, I would have killed the child because that's my job. I got to do that. I don't want to piss off Wolverine. But more importantly, you know, the X-Force exists to eliminate the possibility of these threats later on to ensure the survival of the X-Men. And I think that if I had agreed to do that, I would do that in some sort of utilitarian effort for just the team. But if I, you know, as an onlooker, as a reader, as even if I existed in this universe and I was just a typical member of the X-Men, not an X-Force, I would not kill the child, not pull the lever. That's interesting, Mark. I don't think I would kill Kid Apocalypse. I would do what Phantom X did and take him in, see if he can be really rehabilitated. And if it is the case that he cannot be rehabilitated, that's when I would kill him because you have to make, I feel like you have to make that qualitative judgment before you can take action. But uh, Gabby brought up a point earlier about the likeliness of whether of whether Kid Apocalypse would turn into the monster that people are trying to make him out to be. Do you think that, uh, Gabby, do you think that that likeliness should be calculated like into the decision or what's your stance on that? I think that from the perspective of utility that it would be a very reasonable argument to say that the, that the potential for the child to cause a lot of harm would be reason enough to kill him. However, personally speaking, I would not be able to take a life based on that conjecture alone. I and generally speaking I think that the only way that I would ever be compelled to harm someone um, lethally even would be if unless there was like a direct and very like bounded temp like temporally bounded situation in which I knew that if I did not act many many people would die and that would be the only situation in which I would be able to act in that way. All right, I think I think it's interesting to hear that from you about like your personal emotive like points of views in these like fictional like fictional dilemmas because I I always thought it was interesting that the emotive response is what gets us all to do what we do in the end in the most cases but then again like the logical uh, and very calculated like for example the utilitarian perspective or the Kantian perspective it's what 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 we think about when we're not in that situation so i think exactly that, i think there's there's a big difference between being able to do something and thinking that it would be morally right to do something else so that's that's interesting to see actually mark you wanted to add a point earlier Bushi, oh. sorry no i uh i think mine has been covered Oh, I'm sorry, Justin. It's good. So I have uh, well, I was reading X Factor when Apocalypse had his first appearance, and I'm racking my brain now. I I guarantee I've read at least ninety percent of the comics that Apocalypse has been in, with the exception of the Age of Apocalypse storylines. I actually can't think of anyone he killed. 
I think he's been stopped every single time. You could argue that Warren's death in major spoiler where the Dark Angel saga is a result of Apocalypse, but Apocalypse actually, if you think about it, saved Warren from committing suicide in uh, one of the early X-Factor issues when he lost his wings. Uh, Warren got on a plane and meant to kill himself and didn't solely because Apocalypse stepped in and made him into Archangel. I doubt he would have had a romance with Betsy had that never happened. And he was also blue and very colorful in the 80s when we needed blue and colorful. We're getting really into the ifs and whens right here. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but, but I would just look for, I, just don't, I don't know, if, I, don't, I can't think of one person Apocalypse killed. But yeah, you brought up the Age of Apocalypse world earlier, and we actually encounter characters from the Age of Apocalypse world, which is a world in which Apocalypse has seized control over the USA, over America, and in which he has undoubtedly killed many, many Homo sapiens. And I don't know, I feel like. It's interesting to take a look at his the potential of like his powers versus well the innocent child and how likely that is that he would uh, he would kill someone. Okay, before we get into more of the, like about the de- determinism discussion, does anyone like want to add something to this discussion of a trolley problem discussion, or are we fine? We're All Gucci. right, I I feel like we should move on. So this debate about the apocalypse child, I think, is not... Gabby has brought this up earlier, actually. It's not only about utilitarianism or the ethics of child murder, but it's also very much about a a discussion about whether the clone of apocalypse, the child apocalypse, is a blank slate, or uh, if it's maybe destined to be evil in in some way. And yeah, I I feel like it's interesting that we read some uh, in preparation for this read some papers regarding the theory of determinism and mark can you uh, give us a quick definition of what determinism is i would be happy to determinism is basically the school of thought that free will does not exist and all actions we take are preordained by some greater force be it god fate what have you all right that's that's very interesting and is biology included in that Deter- um, determinism like most no. determinists would argue that it's a combination of many things of like the factors that uh, are like the the way you spend your childhood the factors that uh, affect you every day uh, the country you grew up in the culture you grew up in but also possibly your dna yeah but biological determinism is a very like pervasive school of thought as yes. well Right. So, yeah, thank you. First of all, thank you, Mark, for that definition. So based on what we found out about determinism, do you think that this is applicable in the context of the comic? Do you think that that uh, could tell us more about uh, about whether uh, to kill the apocalypse child, about whether we can change something about the fate of the apocalypse child? And uh, also, what's your stance on like the conflict between determinism versus free will, Mark? Well, I think that it's really hard to talk about determinism in comics because just because of all the multiple universes and timelines, there's always going to be a timeline where Apocalypse does take over and there's always going to be a timeline where he doesn't. So I think that's... We've actually seen some of those timelines. So yeah. So I that. think I think it, that makes it hard to argue for or against determinism. I personally, in my own way of thinking, champion free thought above free thought and free will above all else. So that causes me to push back against determinism a lot because of the, the faith I have in myself and the faith I have in humanity. But then again, maybe I'm determined to do that. I'm not sure. But I prefer to think of... I 
just champion free will above all else in my own school of thought. All right, Dallin? I think the comic definitely pushes against determinism, and this kind of connects back to the bias thing and something Justin said about being an onlooker, where we get to see the child apocalypse tell his henchmen that he doesn't want anyone to die, but then the henchmen just pretend that the guy he talks with pretends that he said they wanted the X-Men to die, so they try to kill the X-Men, or the X-Force, I mean. Incredible and, point. That's, that's... So that like that shows that he can be changed and that he isn't determined to be evil. Yeah, Justin? I think that it's a very, again, a slippery slope to go into in terms of is child apocalypse determined to be a... To, to become adult apocalypse. And we also, I don't remember which Earth number it is, but in, oh man, I forgot the name of the comic, but it's a comic that happens after the first volume of X Factor. Havoc is in an alternate dimension. And in this dimension, Apocalypse is a good person. And the bad person is uh, Madeline Pryor, Goblin Queen, is, like the, is the, the big bad, to use my Buffy speak for in that comic. Man, is it Mutant X? But that was also a TV show, so I'd be surprised if that was the name of it. I'm not sure. It was something, obviously X was in the name. Anyway, it was starring Havoc. Apocalypse was like, you know, a good guy in this, so to speak. So anyway, I just think it's a da- it's dangerous for Wolverine, Psylocke, Archangel, Phantom X, and Deadpool to decide if Kid Apocalypse is going to grow up to be Adult Apocalypse. And I think that it is, I don't know, dangerous to put the issue of determination in their hands. Gabby? So two points. I'm reminded of a conversation that you and I had, Marius, in which we were talking about the question of um, how how can we know that we know? And you brought up the point that it's certainly uh, believable that we can never know. But if that is the truth, then we have to operate it within our world as if we can know. Yes. Because there, you know, the other the the alternative is I don't know, like just Doing wasting away all. and and. So I think that in with regards to this notion of determinism in the comic, like all of the members of the X-Force have chosen in a way to push back against this idea of determinism because they believe that their actions have value and that their actions have echoes beyond themselves. However, this does sort of come into conflict, like their own personal belief in their free will and their agency as people in the world comes into conflict with their idea that there is a sort of deterministic fate for Kid Apocalypse. So I think that that's an interesting sort of like contrast or, uh, you know, ideologies sort of pushing up against each other. Um, That's very true, yes. And then I think like with Kid Apocalypse, I think that if you believe that your actions have meaning, then you have to believe that someone isn't determined to be like someone bad. And so I think that that Psylocke's intuition that like, okay, we can nurture him and, and make him become something other than what he's been sort of literally like summoned to be. I kind of that coheres with my worldview in some ways. All right, Justin. And then I think we're wrapping. I'm not sure that I, oh, I think it could be argued that Psylocke makes the decision to save or to try to save a young apocalypse in that. Well, I guess that we don't know this, but what if she made that decision because she thought killing a child would cause her so much suffering because she was Lady Mandarin. She did live this other life. She did kill people. She did have to live with that guilt. And she does have to live with this sort of like killer instinct. Like what if she chooses not to kill him out of fear of her own suffering? And I but, just think that we we have no way of knowing, in my understanding, through the text, if but, why she makes that decision. That's interesting, though, because I would argue that in utilitarian terms, that would be pretty egoistic. All right. So uh, does any of you want to add something to the free will versus determinism discussion? 
Oh, we fine. All right, wrapping this segment. Before we get into the next segment, I would just like to point oh, out that... Sorry. No, excuse me, Marius. I would just like to point out that the man you just heard uh, make a, an utterance, he has two Y chromosomes. It's very possible. And it's something that should be noted while listening to the voice of, to his sonorous uh, German voice. Just That um, it's coming out of, out of a man that not only, that has two Y chromosomes, not just one. Dose. I'm not sure in what way this is relevant to ethics in comics, but it's uh, an interesting trivia about me. Uh, yeah, yeah. So moving on to our next segment, which is called From Great Power, Uncle Ben and Peter Singer. And without exaggeration, this is probably, I, I always say that this is probably the most iconic quote or one of the most iconic quotes in comic book history. And I want to say virtually every person on the planet has heard this at least once. With great power, there must also come great responsibility. I mean, we get to hear that virtually every time in some form when there's another Spider-Man reboot. So does any of you have a specific like favorite Spider-Man related moment from comics, film, TV or whatever that kind of underlines the importance of this uh, Uncle Ben quote, Dallin? My favorite moment would be when Uncle Ben is killed because that is the biggest one that emphasizes it right after he says it is that spider-man steps away and lets this guy get by and then uncle ben gets killed for it so definitely all right mark hassen frotsman mark bouchard i i really like in the first toby Maguire spider-man movie i just really liked the way i forget the name of the actor but the guy who played uncle ben absolutely nailed it i think that he he got across that like paternal like fatherly but also kind of grandfatherly aspect of the character to him and he's just a sweet old man and just knowing that heartbreaking moment uh was coming made that all all the more bitter that's so Um, true mark i think it just and this is why i really really love spider-man it's because this is like this is like weaved through to not okay silk whatever web yeah weaved throughout the entire like story of like i guess it's just spider-man like it's like you see in every time peter and mary jane split because like he can't be peter 100 of the time percent of the time and like she won't let him be peter 100 percent of the time also even though she like wants him to but again again it also just comes up in like i don't know it just comes up in like because you see spot you see iron man is like the head of a company and you see iron man is like iron man but Peter Parker's life is Spider-Man. Like, Spider-Man is always inconveniencing Peter Parker. But he sort of just does it anyways to the point of where he literally, like, is erased from the world and, like, a like a little bit of DNA when Dr. Octopus takes over his body in Superior Spider-Man. But you, we, even though Dr. Octopus is controlling the body of Spider-Man, like, there's just, like, this ghost of, like, nothing that's there because his brain waves were, like, a, erased. Like, he died. And then, like... He's still there. He comes back from the literal dead, from nothing, to overtake the person who is controlling his body because, like, that is his dedication. And, like, in a, in a sense, that is the that is the severity of the guilt that Spider-Man just, like, focuses, like, functions with every day. Thank you for sharing your moments. That's really fascinating. And we're actually going to get into a lot of what you mentioned in the next few minutes or in the next uh, half an hour. So... 
Well, I'm always wondering how could this like very easy to agree with statement be a topic of debate. It's It doesn't really sound that controversial on first glance, right? But we all read into this or dealt with uh, this very, intru- uh, very controversial and influential essay by Australian philosopher, activist, vegan and utilitarian Peter Singer. And it's called Famine, Affluence and Morality was published in the 1970s. And in this essay, he uses the example example of a child drowning in a pond that we're walking by in order to demonstrate that yes we do have the obligation to help and do good as long as we don't sacrifice anything of comparable moral importance so for instance we could ruin our like say 200 dollars shoes by saving that child but undoubtedly a human life is worth by utilitarian standards and by pretty much any standards is worth more than a pair of shoes so do you think that this is ju- just what uncle ben has been saying with his quote about res- moral responsibility if that if we can help we should and are these two statements uh, basically synonymous mark first off i'd like to say that i'm flattered in you thinking that i can afford 200 dollars shoes <laughs> but yeah i think that was the essence of what uncle ben was trying to get across was that it's not enough that you have power it's about what you do with it and i think that is how uncle ben was such an outstanding human being and given that he was just a human you know his his nephew is a superhuman so he takes that to another level of what his uncle taught him of just how to be a decent human being and help others gabby i think that uncle ben's statement really sort of is in is consonant with what singer is proposing because he doesn't say like with great power comes like great self-restraint or something like that he says like responsibility which i think is a really good word choice because it implies that one has a duty like there's a there's a positive or like there's an active part of having power and i think that that's a lot of what singer talks about in the in the resources that you made available to us marius is that it's not just about not doing harm but also using your means to actively do good that's very interesting because this is like almost an exact quote by peter singer because he said that it's not enough to be going through the world not causing any harm not lying to everyone with this like good intent but if we can do something actively against suffering on a large scale, then we should do that. Uh, anyone else got to add something to this question? I think this also really comes through in the new... A lot of people don't like the new arc of Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man, because Peter Parker is in no way struggling, really. He's not impoverished anymore. He is at the head of a tech company similar to Stark Industries that is actually running Stark Industries out of business. So he has, at this point, like, he can, he is Spider-Man, but also he is a billionaire. So we see him doing, like, like he's he goes, like, he's very international and stuff, but also, like, in his times when he's Peter Parker, he's not, like, struggling to pay rent. We see him, like, like starting charities and, like, building, like, hospitals in other countries and stuff. And he's just, like, Peter Parker, like, there's no way for Peter Parker to exist in a way, I feel like, that, that like lets him relax and like enjoy himself. And I feel like whatever's in his power, like he's either like getting himself by or he's getting other people by. And like, that's what Peter Parker does. That's what Spider-Man does. And I think that that's what makes him like, honestly, like such an easy to like character. Cause he's just like, and even when he messes up, he's like kind of lovable about it. I don't know. He's adorable. I love Spider-Man. I would very much agree with that, Mark. Uh, just a quick comment going off of that. One of my all-time favorite 
Spider-Man moments and one of the things that I think makes him such a great example of utilitarian and such a likable hero is at the end of Spider-Verse he's saying like oh man like I just saved the entire universe from being ripped apart and I saved the lives of countless beings like is my old crime fighting gonna be satisfying to me and then some woman's purse gets stolen by a thief and so Spider-Man flies down knocks out the thief returns the purse to the old woman and the old woman says oh thank you so much like you're you're a real hero all this and then Spidey just webs webs off and swings away and he says like yeah of course i i do it i still do it for the little things like that and that's why i do this i'm so happy that you would bring up examples from comic books that showcase like his dedication to actually living up to the standards of peter singer or in, in his case the standards that were set by his uncle But let's cast our eyes at another comic book that we took a look at and that actually like presents this moralistic struggle within Peter. And the, the comic book is called Sensational Spider-Man number 40, volume 2 number 40, which shows us Peter at like his worst possible moment. His Aunt May is in the hospital struggling to survive. He's running from the police. His family is endangered because his, his uh, well, secret identity is no longer secret. And... In this issue, Peter basically encounters what appears to be, well, literally God himself. And God, or the one above all of the Marvel Universe, shows Peter a fictional beach of uh, hundreds and hundreds of people whose life Peter has saved as Spider-Man. And this is like, this is not even all the lives he saved. It's just a tiny amount of one uh, percent of the lives that he might have saved in his time serving as spider-man and what did you i don't know what did you guys think about like the overall way that the comic book presented like the moralistic struggle of him wanting to go on versus not wanting to go on Oh, Mark? I really liked it because after seeing Spider-Man struggle for so many years, it was really satisfying to have him finally be like, this is why I do it. I can see the result of my action and this is what's giving me strength to go on. So that was just super heartwarming for me. It was a great way to just do a single issue story yes. and to really get to the heart of what Spider-Man's about. All right. Anyone else? Dallin? I thought that it was like it did very well at showing... Um you know, supporting Uncle Ben's quote and showing how he's been a hero. And I thought I was a little sad that I was so biased about that because like the other stuff we read addresses everything. And this one like shows a couple panels of like deaths, like Gwen's death and yes. uh, the Green Goblin's death and things that, and then, you know, Aunt May is sick because of someone who was trying to attack Spider-Man, I think. Right, yes. And, um, but that just was really unaddressed and just the whole issue was supporting him being a hero. That's a good point, because where do we draw the line on that? But we're going to get into that later. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Gabby? I thought that the scene on the beach was super, super poignant, and it really, it was very, um, it, you know, it kind of hit me a little bit, you know? It made me feel some type of way, and I think the reason is, is because oftentimes, you know, when like you know he's at his darkest moment and he's only able to think of his failings and challenges and obstacles and then when he's really confronted with the number of people that he's saved the lives of or positively influenced it's it's really stunning and wonderful and i think that it's really hard to know 
like it's it's really easy to know when you f***ed up and like the people that you like you made angry but it's really hard to know the number of people you might have like actually improved their lives in some way and i thought that that was a really like creative and lovely way to show that if a little bit you know it did remind me of that poster that's like in every like grandma's house of like the footsteps on the beach and it's like the walk with jesus on the beach yeah it did remind me of that a little bit which is a little bit like but like you know it was still good mark oh i just want to say that my grandma did not have that in her house she had a dancing and singing george bush doll that creeped me out that is way that is way worse that's even more blasphemous yeah no if we chose the that's hot (laughs) 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 on a more serious note though if we all agree with the Peter Singer approach, and as Stalin has pointed out, some of the Spider-Man comics are pretty much biased towards that. We would have to agree, uh, if we consequentially like think this through, that no matter how much he and the people around him suffer, no matter how often Aunt May dies, no matter how many more family members and friends he's gonna lose because of his role as Spider-Man, so no matter what happens in his personal life, that will never be of comparable moral significance compared to the thousands of lives he saves as a superhero. So from a utilitarian perspective, he's morally obliged to continue basically till he dies. What do we think about that? Justin? There was a video you asked us to watch uh, from Philosophy Tube uh, where the Ali, the man on Philosophy Tube... Shout out to Philosophy Tube. Shout out to Philosophy Tube and Ali that where he discusses superman and how superman could be more utilitarian and i think that that video is really applicable to what we're talking about here would you agree it is yes while watching that video i thought that the argument was definitely really well posed that you know superman should spend more time or less time being clark kent more time being superman to help more people in the the human race that being said i thought about like what about superman and his mental health what about what like what enables superman to be able to go out there and do that and doesn't doesn't he deserve to have a family doesn't he deserve to be with lois lane or super or wonder woman depending on if it's new 52 or not doesn't he deserve to have a family and because he's so powerful it's part of his responsibility that he doesn't get to have that and i felt bad for superman i i can pretty much understand that point but from like just from a Peter Singer perspective, none of that is of comparable moral significance because his personal suffering through not uh, having a, a, any relationship whatsoever or not having uh, a joyful life is in no way comparable to millions of lives that he can save as a superhero. That being said, uh, well, as Stalin has pointed out, uh, these comics can be maybe the the discussion around this can be biased towards utilitarianism in this way that uh, we maybe we don't take into account the perspective of the heroes themselves and whether they would deserve that but that's a good point that's a really good point if you have that kind of power if you like consider if you're like using that perspective then like should their feelings e- like even really matter cuz like then they would know that they were doing like the utmost good and like stuff i don't know i like if it is truly inconsequential then like isn't it just inconsequential com- comparatively 
Yeah, I think I know what you're saying. And that's also a good point. Well, uh, it's always a, a matter of perspective, but maybe Dallin wants to add something about that. Well, going off that, like something Peter Singer also mentions is like whether everyone should contribute like equally to like a charity fund or if you should contribute as much as you can contribute and everyone should do that. And, you know, like Mark said that, you know, it could be considered in inconsequential sometimes. It's, and then it's like, what about normal humans and us? And like, because we obviously have normal lives and like what and can help in our own ways. So why should should Spider-Man like because he's more power do more or should it just be that everyone should help? And like, why are there other people trying to be like vigilantes trying to help in Spider-Man's world? Well, that's that's kind of like how like taxes work and stuff like if you can pay more <laughs> then you pay more that's like it's just like and that's like why that's like why that's like i think that we're like getting into a couple of school stuff cause like um like i'm a person right like spider-man can like stop uh like an oil tanker that's like going down a major highway and like i can't do that and like if spider-man has to if spider-man senses this and like has to leave like i don't know like a invention presentation or whatever is going to happen next in the Spider-Man universe. He would do that. Like his Spider-Man, his role as Spider-Man has been kind of wrecking his life since he became Spider-Man. And like, it seems like all like, and it seems like not a whole lot. He does as Spider-Man does anything to help him. I don't know. Like very true. Very, yeah. Very but, true. but he still like does it. Cause like, I mean, a, he's like super smart. Like why does Reed Richards do it? You know? Right. I think I think that's a good point that you're bringing up that uh, in in case of the oil tank that we, arguably not many people could do something against that that the responsibility comes from from the power just as uh, uh, Uncle Ben would put that Justin. Oh yeah. What about the apocalypse dissolution? In that, what if someone? What if Spider-Man saves someone who has a great upbringing who grows up to be some apocalypse? Or, and I just had a question, which is that pretend Spider-Man has never existed. There's never been a radioactive spider until this very moment. What if by some chance I have the opportunity to make a choice that will result in me being bitten by a radioactive spider or not? And I don't know if that radioactive spider will kill me or turn me into spider-man like is the utilitarian choice to force myself to be bitten by the radioactive spider i think we'd need to know a little more about this radioactive spider other than that it's radioactive because i don't really know a whole lot about science but i feel like getting bit by a radioactive spider would just be like a spider bite but like worse like you might also get cancer so i mean like if If the idea was, like, getting imbued, like, if you could, like, make a choice that got you, like, imbued with Spider-Man powers, I guess kind of similarly to how um, Anya Corazon, like, the Spider-Woman, yes. how she just, like, kind of is there bestowed upon her. I don't know. Like, I feel like, I feel like, I, have, I feel like Spider-Man should be a lot more, like, emotionally stunted than he is. Like, or, like, just, like, it's got to take such a toll on you. Right. Like, he, the man just... The man just, like, wrecks his life from every turn purposefully, but, like, to do it for, like, the greater good, I don't know. Like, I really admire Spider-Man. All right, Gabby, and then we're moving on. So the on. question was, should Spider-Man just, like, be Spider-Man, like, all the time and stuff? That was the question? Yes. So, yeah, so in the, you know, referencing the, the great video that we watched from Philosophy Tube, right? That's what it's called? 
Yes. He talks about the point of marginal utility, right? And that's the point at which you're you're sacrificing too much personally to be as you to as to be doing as much utility as you could be, right? right. The point of marginal utility is basically the point at which the act would no longer be utilitarian, in which the act would again produce more harm than it serves. Right. And so my question is like Is self-preservation and self-care, can it be considered a utilitarian act? Because if Peter Parker were to look after himself and to be able to step back in certain situations, which maybe in the short term would cause more strife, but would enable his ability to save lives in the future and ensure his own physical and psychological well-being wouldn't that be an act of a utilitarian act if he knows like hey i if i do this i might save this submarine full of people i don't know why i chose submarine it just felt right but he might <laughs> save the submarine but it he's like but i will have a mental breakdown after this and i like just can't you know what i mean like yes that's that's a great point actually we're gonna get i really love the fact that you all keep bringing up these these uh, points about spider-man being most utilitarian and what maybe what problems could occur with that and we're gonna get we're really close to getting into the real life analogy to this so bear with me and we're i f i really think this is where it gets, it gets really interesting so now Not many of our listeners might know that there is actually a movement that originated from the ideas presented by Peter Singer and they refer to themselves as effective altruists because they try to take Singer's ideas kind of to the extreme because if you think about it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really make a morally comparable, a morally relevant difference if the child we need to save is right next to us falling into this pond or on the other end of the world starving to death. So by living modestly in order to be able to donate as much money as possible to effective charities or even to to take on jobs to that generate the highest amount of money to be able to donate more that's how effective altruists try to uh, prevent as much harm uh, as possible and since even little donations can have a huge influence like for instance say $50 with $50 you can restore a person's eyesight Or with every dollar given to the right animal charity, you might end up sparing 14 animals per dollar the life in factory farming. I think it could very well be argued that for every one of us, in fact, there is such a thing as great power. Does that mean that Uncle Ben wants us all to become effective altruists? Gabby? I So, effective altruism. I actually was first made aware of the movement i suppose you could call it of effective yes. altruism when i was in high school and it was framed to me in a very sort of disdainful like not very nuanced way by my theory of knowledge teacher and since i've been reading about it more and i've been happy to like revisit this way of thought my most of the effective altruists The most of the effective altruist community I know are people who have like high paying finance jobs and yes. then donate most of their money. I think that there is a lot of value in that. However, I guess I, I sort of retreat back to my original sort of thinking when we were talking about Kant and utilitarianism, which is to say that functioning within the capitalist paradigm to be able to generate, you know, to be able to generate capital, to be able to donate is one way to 
to be effective, certainly within the capitalist paradigm. But I don't know if that's I, I think that there are pro- I hope that there are more ways and that and that might be just me trying to like comfort my own guilt at feeling like I'm not really doing much to help anyone other than myself. But I would hope that there are there are ways outside of this very like rigorous economic kind of approach to altruism. I I would pretty much I I I think that is a great point that you're bringing up. Then again, I could also see uh, that point being defended by utilitarianism, by uh, for instance, by saying that well, in the short time it serves the utility, but in the long term we're just uh, defending the capitalist anti-egalitarian uh, kind of system. In that way, I could I could see Kant and uh, the util- both Kant and utilitarians arguing against that, uh, and I get that. That being said, even with uh, uh, with jobs that are not as high paying and not as uh, quote unquote capitalistic as the for the finance sector, we can do a lot of effective altruism. And uh, I was just wondering, like. Uh, say you go to a store and buy a CD, which is a very like mundane example, but with the same money you could have, uh, you could have spared 140 plus animals from factory farming, which is arguably not comparable to buying a CD, which will well eventually give you some pleasure, but not as much as uh, 140 times not living in factory farming. Yeah. Uh, Mark, did you want to add something about that? Yeah, just from my own personal experience with this, I think that money is definitely not the only thing you can do to improve people's lives. I have spent a lot of time volunteering with a great organization called Comfort Zone Camp that basically it's like a, a weekend summer camp for children of loss, so kids who have uh, experienced the loss of a parent, guardian, sibling, close friend. And so they they train you to help out these kids and devote your time, devote a weekend to helping these kids talk through their issues and realize that they're not the only person in their school or their community who has been through the same thing as them. And they say that I think um, the statistic was that this one weekend of being able to talk about their feelings in a, in a comfortable setting and meet other kids who have had very similar experience is as effective as I think three months of therapy in this one weekend. So I, I feel like donating time is also a factor in being able to be an effective altruist mark that's actually a really really good point and uh, i'm gonna say i'm gonna i'm gonna ask a very like i don't know if it's controversial but it's uh, definitely like challenging to the point you made first of all i obviously really respect what you've done i uh, respect uh, i mean i've been doing a lot of volunteering myself uh, as some of you might know that being said Let's take this back to like the Spider-Man analogy because Spider-Man could do this kind of volunteering as Peter Parker, but in the meantime, he could also he could also uh, serve as Spider-Man and save a lot of yeah. lives from, uh, for example, a, a gas explosion or uh, what was our example? And what I'm basically what I'm saying is that we could generate more money in that time and spend that. So in in terms of effectiveness, do you think that effectiveness ha- has always to be like this uh, defining factor? Dylan, I think you wanted to to add something. Oh, sorry, uh, Mark. I feel like, well, like I guess a the the thing you could say would be Spider Man is saving the lives of people who could be doing this. So like that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, but also, I feel like Spider Man, like Spider Man saving people's lives is like I feel like if you save a life and then like. 
Damn, okay, I'm about to go down some real intense path, so I don't know if I want to go down that path. Like, because then, like... Please do it. Uh, then then how, if we're all just about saving lives, like how, and even it reduces the quality, uh, let's just... Please let's, go, please go let's, ahead. I would like to hear your point. Well, I don't even know where I stand, like, as I go into that. Like, um, it's just like, uh, I don't want to get into it. Not getting uh, into it then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. I, don't, I mean, like, I don't want to, like, it would it would just take a while to, like, delve into this. Because I, myself, haven't even, like, come to a conclusion. Yeah, I think that... That's fair. That That is fair. I think we all feel uh, kind of like that about some moral points. But would you guys agree that Uncle Ben would definitely want us to do more than we do right now in some way? I feel like there's, to counter that point, I feel like there's always something more you can be doing. Right. And I think that Uncle Ben was trying to get Peter to realize that and to act on that. So I think that right. is there like by definition, there is always something more we can be doing. But I think that just from a, a parental perspective on Uncle Ben, he was trying to inspire this sense of good in, in Peter that yes. has motivated his superhero career. Gabby? And I also think that Uncle Ben is providing a really nice a framework that i would like to apply more to my own life in terms of like what how you can think of yourself as a good person and being a good person doesn't just mean like you know like it's kind of like what we were saying before it doesn't mean fo just following the law and just sort of living this complacent like lifestyle it means being very conscious about your actions and actively trying to improve the lives of those around you or just those on the planet and i think that that is I don't know, especially with like the current political situation and stuff like that. It's like that's a very um, rallying kind of viewpoint. It's that it's like it's not just about, oh, OK, like I'm sitting here and I didn't kill any babies. So like pat on the back. It's like, no, you should be out there like doing good work. Yes. Very true. Mark? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that a good way to summarize this point of view is that the absence of bad does not define good. Word. Yes. I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> By the way. Dear audience, in case you might be interested in effective altruism, definitely check out, if you're into animal welfare, definitely check out Animal Charity Evaluators. Uh, also check out The Life You Can Save. Those are like great sources for this kind of, well, doing good with the money you have, but also, well, as Marcus pointed out, you can always volunteer and uh, do something good with the time you have. So... Kind of getting into the end of a segment, according to, for instance, more like libertarian approaches by the likes of, say, Murray Rothbard, all we need to do in order to live morally is not harm another human or restrict his freedom. So we're not really obliged to anything. So like morally in the in the example of a trolley problem or the apocalypse solution, we can just walk away from the situation. No strings attached, no great responsibility. I, I was going to say, let's get into the discussion about what appeals more to you, libertarianism or utilitarianism. But I think we're, I think most of us are kind of on the same page, I guess. Would anyone disagree? Anyone trying to defend libertarianism? No, I'm not. Because as I said earlier, absence of evil does not necessarily mean good. Yes. And libertarians are just Republicans who want to smoke weed. <laughs> in my opinion, in my experience. Hell that's, yeah. That, uh, that's very, I'm, I'm, I mean, there is some truth to that. I'm not going to lie, Gabby. <laughs> um, the thing is, I feel like there's a certain branch of like anti 
government well i mean okay so like we talked about this on the v for vendetta podcast shouts out v for vendetta check it out on comicsverse.com <laughs> and we were talking about how like you have sort of like on there's a there's a school of anarchist thought that can be conflated with libertarianism but isn't quite that and it's sort of model of anarchy anarchism i suppose that is mostly championed by noam chomsky called anarcho syndicalism and it's basically like small communities everyone has a chance like everyone has their choice of whether to participate in the community there's no like huge government that's like mandating the values of the society and whatnot and so yes and as much as i believe in i guess what i'm saying is like i think that in our current paradigm of like democracy utility is defined by like a flawed governing body and so i think that like we have personal responsibility for our own calculus of utility but i and i'm not a libertarian but i also think like there should be the option of like i what i said made no no, it was anyway. beautiful. I no, think I, I think really it, I think it did make it. sense, and I think it's interesting that you would bring this up because, well, as you said, there's no government forcing any values on you in libertarianism, and I feel like this is really something that is fitting to the point that we're making that in the libertarian like philosophy, there's nothing that forces you to do anything uh, against your own freedom of choice as long as it doesn't harm any other human being. So that's basically why you can ignore suffering, basically, even if that might sound cruel. But you can pretty much walk away from these kind of situations. Right. And I mean, I think that's wrong. But I think that there's a certain model of like non-participation, sort of like I was saying, like a narco-syndicalism model where it's like it can't really function in our current like paradigm because there is so much inequality and suffering that's already like inherited you know and how our world works now like environmentally socially politically what have you but i think like if you do the thought experiment of like what given human nature or whatever i mean i don't know that's going actually that's going way too far because then you get into the social contract and whatever we're but gonna like, get into na naturalistic yeah exactly discussion. exactly so that's where it's going so <laughs> no let's not go there i think it's time to wrap up the segment and talk about the book's ending the sensational spider-man 40s last few panels in which it's being hinted on that uh, there's sort of a happy ending for peter parker with his wife and children and for me the moral dilemma and uh, i think you would agree for me the moral dilemma seems to be that in a world which has in which he has settled down and is no longer spider-man he doesn't fulfill his responsibility but in a world in which he keeps being spidey till the moment of his death he will always let his personal life slide and this is probably the most important theme in the spider-man world the conflict between moral responsibility and personal happiness where do you think peter but also all of us as potential effective altruists can draw a line, if any line can be drawn at all. And simply put, can there ever be a happy ending for Spider-Man whatsoever, Gabby? I think that this sort of conundrum really rings true for a situation that I'm seeing a lot in my life now. And it's applicable to my friends who are really deeply involved in the activist community, especially in the Black Lives Matter movement. And... There's a lot of rhetoric and discussion about what, as activists, what needs to be done to make sure that you can continue organizing and continue, you know, 
fighting for the things that you want to fight for. And a lot of that has to do with knowing when to take a break. And a lot of my friends in the activist community are like super dogged, super self-sacrificing. And that's why they're part of this community and why they're so into activism. But at the same time, like if the reason why the this self-care sort of movement or like thing of like people thinking like oh self-care i just have seen it a lot like on the internet and i re- and i think the reason why is that people need learning to put in balance their responsibility as activists and as citizens and their literal like physical and emotional constraints and limits and i think that that is so important i think that there doesn't exist a person who can doggedly pursue their ethical or social agenda without taking a time for rest and personal care so you're saying that uh, the line should be drawn in order to ensure spider-man can keep on saving lives as effectively as possible in this way of like self-care for utility absolutely i don't necessarily i am not given our discussion and the types of analyses we've been doing i don't think i'm so comfortable with like oh a happy ending is just enough but i think that there is a point to you know, taking a break yes. and, and making sure that you don't just lose your mind because you're That's a Spider-Man. very true. <laughs> Justin? Yeah, no, I was going to add on to that with what we were talking about earlier with the Superman philosophy video and in the case of Spider-Man here. And I think Gabby's absolutely right. Like, at what point do you stop saving people to take care of yourself so that you can save more people? And, you know, how much self-sacrifice is required, you know, in order to make the world a better place? And, and do you have to completely give up who you are and your own needs and, and desires in order to do that? I really like the Spider-Man issue. I don't want to dog it, but I did think that there was like a lot of wish fulfillment in there because I think the reality is, is that, I mean, unlike, you know, many Republicans, God doesn't talk to me and I never know. And I think a lot of people would identify with this. You don't know if you do choose from a Kantian perspective to even do something with good intentions. Like, even if you have good intentions, God doesn't speak to you. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. I like, totally forgot Sorry. what I was talking about. Yeah. So even if you do have good intentions and, and you do things with the best possible intent, you don't know if you know, the outcome is positive. And you're also, I think, question yourself and, you know, are you doing it for, with the best possible intentions? And is it going to have, I guess you don't think of the consequences, but from a utilitarian perspective, is it going to have positive consequences? But I did think that there's, it puts up this fallacy, which I think was said so well in one of my favorite TV shows ever, Six Feet Under. Uh, in the last season, there's a character, I think it's her name is Maggie, and she's a Quaker. And she says, life isn't a vending machine where you put in virtue and get back happiness. And I think that that's so true. It is, But I yeah. did think that this comic kind of supported the fallacy that life is life will reward you for doing good things. And I just think that life is too f***ed up for that. Mark? I agree with everything that's already been said, but I just want to add that the only scenario in which I see Spider-Man having that happy ending with being happily married to Mary Jane and perhaps having some children, the only scenario I see that happening in is if he somehow lost his powers. Agreed. Totally agreed. All right. Is there anything we have to add? Otherwise, I would say we wrap the segment. Any last words? For those of you who missed the part before, I just wanted to remind everyone again that Marius likely does have two Y chromosomes. That's all. Thank you.
double the man. So moving on to another segment, which is called ethical vegetarianism and animal welfare in superhero comics. So I think we're all aware that this is potentially a really sensitive topic to talk about, especially on the internet. I mean, basically most of the time when you try and discuss veganism and vegetarianism on the internet, the comment section would get really, really out of hand. So in all honesty, in the name of everyone in this podcast, I think when discussing the ethical implications of meat consumption, animal testing, etc., etc., we're not trying to say that anyone is a murderer or per se a bad person for having a different opinion or for not living the way maybe we think is ethical to live. And that's why I'm really happy about that, about the fact that we have both vegetarians slash vegans and non-vegetarians in the mix today. First off, Gabby and Justin, both of you aren't consuming animal products. Both of you are vegans. For starters, would you consider yourself ethical vegans? And if so, why? Gabby, feel free to start. Right. I would hesitate to... I would say that I endeavor to be a, an ethical vegan. However, I would... Before I happily and comfortably gave myself that title i think i would have to be a little bit more conscious of like all of the products i consume in terms of my food i don't consume animal products i still do have like some clothing that is made from animal suffering i also have like cosmetics and other things that i'm sure are some of which used animal testing but the fact of the matter is like it's an economic consideration that i can't literally just throw away every like everything that i have that was made from animals because i can't afford to replace it all at the moment but i'm slowly like trying to to eliminate products of animal suffering from my life. But in terms of, do you mean like in terms of like why I became a vegan? Yes. Yeah, so I was vegetarian for, I guess, nearly nine years. And then I became vegan because I had always felt like that was the most ethical choice. And the reason I believe that is because for me in my life, consuming meat and animal products is a luxury. It's not something that is necessary for my well-being or my health in any way. And if I can live without having to eat dead meat of animals or eat the products of animals that are produced in sort of not ideal conditions, then I would rather live that way. Justin, what about you? Thank you, Gabby. For me, becoming vegan had a lot to do with not feeling like a hypocrite. And like Gabby, I'm sure even more so in my case that there's possibly things I wear and things I use in my daily life that do come from the suffering of animals. But for me, a big consideration was the environment because the methane released from cows and the type of grazing that we do in America, which comes from corn, has a really big impact on the environment. And I felt that I was being a hypocrite by saying I was part of the Democratic Party and in the United States. And I felt like I was being a hypocrite because I wasn't living up to my own standards when it came to the environment. Additionally, there were some quotes that I always found really powerful. I know Leonardo da Vinci said he refused to be a tomb for animals, and I always thought that was something that really affected me. And also seeing how animals are treated in the United States. There's a lot of movies like Food, Inc. had a really Damn. big impact on me. and That's one intense movie. Yeah, it's a really intense movie. And yeah, I think, I guess I just, I couldn't reconcile being who I am and still eating animal products. That being said, I had a mozzarella stick today, three. Um, they were really good, and I'm, I'm really sorry to the cow that had to do that, and I feel really bad. 
Maybe the cow will forgive you someday. I think so. I'm confident. All right. So what about the others? Just to get like a better understanding of where everyone is coming from. Just in one sentence, what's your opinion on vegetarianism or veganism and animal rights activism? Mark. After reading these comics, I think it definitely opened my mind in it to why people become vegetarian and vegan. I think it makes a lot of sense why people do. But as far as my own personal beliefs go, I am not a vegetarian. That's not to say that I don't. That's not to say that I eat meat for every meal. Like knowing this, I will probably actively try to consume less meat. And when I graduate college in a year, maybe it will financially make more sense. But the reason I feel that I'm not a vegetarian kind of boils down to, and maybe this is a selfish reason, it boils down to I don't want to deprive myself of potential great food experiences, if that makes any sense. Generally, I don't like limiting myself in terms of experience or in terms of, yeah, mostly in terms of experience. I actively try to avoid limiting myself in ways that would, I think, keep me from experiencing life to the fullest. But knowing all of this now, I am taking it into consideration. I appreciate the anti let's not label all meat eaters as murderers thing. I appreciate that a lot. I also think there's in terms of like the life experience thing, I find cooking like it would also like deprive me of learning how to do different recipes with meat and things like that. So while that may be a selfish reason, that's the way I've explained it to myself in my own head. But it has reading these comics have given me a lot to think about. All right. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. I, I feel like there could be like a lot of readers out there or a lot of listeners of the of the podcast out where out there who feel like in a similar way. And I feel like our podcast can give them like from like different perspective like a chance to reevaluate like in what way they would what they would keep or want to change their lifestyle and so thank you thank you for that Dallin. what about you definitely agree with mark on some points like with you know some food availability can be very nice it's also like a bit convenient i've definitely considered like going vegetarian sometimes but and i'm definitely going to consider that more like as i get older and but definitely like have views against like certain animal treatment like i don't like animal cruelty or like when there's like a chicken farm where they're just all compressed together or that sort of stuff but like if they're raised better like cows on a widespread ranch i'm fine with that but all right yeah Yeah, i i definitely i definitely think that if we're going to talk about ethical consumption of food if we're going to accept that not everyone is going to go vegan or vegetarian then i think the question becomes well how then do we ethically consume meat yeah, I think that's that's a great point and that's something we can talk about later. If there is like any way to ethically consume meat and if there is, in what way, and if that's like applicable to, to the masses, I want to call it. But as Ellen just said, like maybe well, some thoughts we can just like revisit when we get older and that's like I always say that there's always like room to doing more. So that's that's why I feel like no one should feel guilty, but like I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, I get it. Yeah, Bushi, I know you've been vegetarian for a lot of times and currently kind of a mix between like omnivore and vegetarian. Tell us more about that. Um, okay, so weirdly when I was like a little kid, like going back, I, this has been like a long thing. When I was a little kid, I like because up until like age seven, like steak was my favorite food. And I like wouldn't get steak like the when, when if, or like hamburgers or whatever. Like and then I started getting all my meat well done when I was like seven. And everyone always like, would get like upset at or whatever. And then I was like confused by it. But like looking at the pink meat just like made me sick. And then when I was about 14 and I don't remember why, I feel like it was because I was trying to impress like a girl. But I feel like I also, it was also the 
the other meats were probably for that or something. And then I just stopped eating meat for like a really long time. And I like one time accidentally ate some like Balinese sauce and threw up. But like other than that, I didn't eat meat again until the really when I got to college because like the dining hall like made it really hard to like get food that didn't offend and like like had like adequate nutrition that had so like basically I started eating chicken and fish because like yeah and uh, now that I don't live in like housing at college honestly like I probably eat like chicken like once a week now and I probably I eat a lot of vegan sausage I don't know what the brand is but they're raised in Wisconsin and they're really like not raised because they're vegan but they're made in Wisconsin but they're really 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 great but yeah, I don't know. I'm actually like my little sister is a vegetarian and she's nine and she's been vegetarian for like a year. Damn. So like I forget what ha- some some event was discussed today. And then I was like, wow, yeah, I'm like going to go vegetarian again. So like as of today, I have been vegetarian fully for like five hours for the first time. And like I've decided to be vegetarian. But again. that's something. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully that will last. And yeah, with yeah. the goal of going vegan. I'm just really sad about cheese like i'm a cheese guy i used to be a cheese fiend and let me tell you you can let it go like you can let it go that i ate actually- like a dozen kilograms of cheese when i was in europe for like three months what that i might totally be too understand much. i used to eat cheese every single day but it's like they did a study and actually like cheese addiction's a thing i'm a slut for brie i'm i'm probably addicted to cheese as well i'm just gonna say this right now i'm a vegetarian as well uh, i have some like really strong opinions so i i'm probably gonna have to be careful on this podcast with what i say and no, i'm just kidding it's but we're gonna work it out what's um, the word for cheese in german Kaiser. 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 Right, you're, thank you. You're Kaiser Schlumper. I really hope we don't have that many German listeners, but thank you, Justin. What does that mean? Cheese slut. That's me. Guys. Okay, so what I was going to say is that <laughs> I, as well, am a vegetarian planning to go vegan, and I, as well, am addicted to cheese, but I, I've actually, I haven't eaten cheese on, except for on, like, pizza for a pretty long time, and I actually got into vegan cheese, so America, I gotta say, as a German person, like, this is really off topic, but America has some really great vegan cheese. Shouts out, ciao. Yes. <laughs> Sponsor comics to- first. You should do that. You should totally do that. All right. So moving- Me and Justin will wear bikinis made out of chow slices. I do not want to see that. Dude, I, do, I, wanna do that. I do I want to do that. I do want to do that. That sounds awesome. You can join us. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, yes. I definitely- However... Dude, I just want to be covered in cheese. However... Do you want to be on top of spaghetti on, too? Going on... From this very appealing conversation about vegan and non-vegan cheese, now that we all know what our opinion on veganism, vegetarianism, whatever is, now we got that out of the way, let's start getting more into what that has to do with superhero comics and how vegetarianism and veganism are being depicted in superhero comics. I actually wrote a piece about this in January, so I had to do a lot of research, and, and it was kind of hard for me to, like, find a lot concerning that topic and there haven't been like many like really i don't know articles about that uh, on the internet in general i just don't feel like it's a topic that's being treated with the attention it deserves within the medium comic book considering that a lot more than three percent of american adults follow this diet and in germany it's actually a lot more i've read numbers of going from five percent to ten percent so that's i mean that's a lot that's definitely worth considering so would you agree with me that vegetarianism in superhero comics is kind of underrepresented 
I mean, I would totally agree because until you'd spoken to me about your article and also like we'd been talking about preparation for this podcast, it's not even something that had crossed my mind. And to be honest, the food or the eating habits of superheroes has not been something at the forefront of my mind. But when you think about it, like food is a definite, you know, like it's a really like strong indicator of like culture and values and, and social sort of bonding and stuff. So it is an important thing to look at. Right. I've also been, I mean, I've always been thinking about superheroes as these heroes that try to save as many human lives as possible. And I just started asking myself, what about animal life? and what what do superheroes do in terms both in terms of activism and in terms of doing something with their actual powers but then again also in terms of avoiding consuming animals what about the others do you think it's underrepresented yeah i would agree with that because i hadn't really thought about it i mean like the first exposure i had to superheroes being vegetarian was beast boy in the teen titans cartoon yes uh, i love that cartoon it's so great just saying like i don't eat meat because i've been most of these animals i don't know it just feels weird i'd never thought about that before so i think it's, it, it is a really cool thing and now that i'm thinking about it yeah it is very indicative of culture and if we want to have comics that are relevant to culture that means we got to represent a lot of different cultures right. so i think that's it's a good thing that's happening. The others, just like in a very short sentence, would you agree? I agree. Yeah. All right. I think we're all on the same page on this. So there's a ton of really there's a ton of vegetarian superheroes. There kinda. is actually Ultimate Thor. Oh, is he in the movie? Oh, I knew he was like an animal activist. Oh, he is an animal activist. I don't right. know if he's vegetarian. He stops whale slaughterers. Yes, that's amazing. So apart from that, like in the instances where animal welfare and vegetarianism in superhero comics have been represented what was your like overall impressions of these like examples of representation i mean generally the pattern that i saw or that is really evident is that superheroes abstain from eating meat when through like some sort of experience or because of the nature of their powers they're able to have a deeper sense of empathy for non-human animals and so it sort of begs the question is like do you have to experience uh the fullness of it like do you have to have touched the fullness of experience of being a full a non-human animal to have the same amount of empathy to not consume and exploit them and yeah, I guess that was the main thing I took that, away. That's a really good point because as we're going, we're going to get into that more. But um, this is something I'm just going to say right now: is that in many instances of vegetarian representation in superhero comics, the vegetarian superhero in question has some kind of ability that grants him mm-hmm. more empathy towards yeah. these. You know who? Oh, yes. Sorry. One character that the like weirdly the the connection is like really weird to that is the werewolf by night because he's like a werewolf but he's a vegetarian because like so when he's a wolf That's like he's supposed to like eat animals and whatnot and like eat people but he's st- still even while under the control of the werewolf is like a strict vegetarian that's really interesting. All right, so anything anyone has to add? Justin? If I was Evan in All New X-Men and I might grow up to be Apocalypse, I would be vegan just to throw people off my scent even more. Ooh. That's cool. That's, that's kind of rock and roll. So moving on from that, during my research, I kind of, I kind of felt like it was 
arguably odd that there wasn't really a real distinction being in most of these examples there wasn't really a real distinction being made between vegetarianism on the one hand and veganism on the other hand in in basically nearly all of these comics and i mean would you agree that this should be more worked out that like there should be a distinction being made between veganism and vegetarianism as some would consider one of those more like applicable, and others would say that the other is more like consequential sorry do you mind repeating the question what i was saying is that uh, i f i kind of feel like there should be a more clearer distinction between veganism and vegetarianism in comics because it's never really addressed it's all Most of the time, veganism is mentioned, but vegetarianism is mentioned, but there's not really they don't really delve into what sets them apart from another, or why someone would want to do more than just vegetarianism. What do you think? Would you agree? I agree. I think that veganism and vegetarianism are both underrepresented, and I think you know that it's one issue, probably not the issue at the forefront for me, but it's definitely an issue that I think comics could explore more. All right, Mark. What I want to see is either, or I think it could be really interesting to see the villain side of it. I, I would really want to see like a really ruthless and evil villain who just does all these horrible things. And then he's like, yeah, I'm vegan because I don't like the idea of hurting animals. Apocalypse. Yeah, no, that could be really cool. Dallin? One of the evil exes in Scott Pilgrim gets superpowers from yes. being vegan. Isn't he being like he's like he's like a level five vegan and he's like, yeah, with all the animal products in my body, I can access that other 90 percent of my brain. Yeah, and so it, with like without the curds and whey. Yeah, without the curds and whey, I can like access the other 90 percent of my brain and be I, a telekinetic person. I kind of feel like he's a really interesting vegan stereotype character. Yeah, that's what I thought was funny about it was it was just like taking the whole culture and kind of making fun of it which i thought was very he's funny he's being arrested by the vegan police right yeah yeah the so and they, they have they they don't have real guns they just have finger guns that's kind of offensive but it's kind of funny i i think yeah i mean it's very again it's very easily it's very easy for me to laugh at that because i eat meat so yeah i get that but yeah so maybe like what we could all agree on that it should be worked out more and that maybe some of the the few vegan representation are kind of like prejudice i guess moving on to the next question one of the issues that we've been reading preparing for this podcast was x-men unlimited number 44 in which gene telepathically experiences the pain of a tortured dog and we get pretty much an exact translation of his thoughts do you think that the emotional impact was well delivered in in that one or what do you think like What's your opinion on this kind of rhetoric device or method of giving voice to animals who usually don't have a voice? Mark? As a dog person, that was heartbreaking. I think that there's a level of companionship in dogs in particular that I don't think humans will ever fully understand or appreciate. So I think drawing attention to that kind of suffering from a dog was very poignant right mark i'm i don't want you to take this personal but i'm gonna ask you something like i, I don't know if it's controversial but like okay cha challenging Shoot. to that what if it wasn't a dog but a pig from factory farming that is a very difficult question to answer i'm sorry cause, yeah because pig pigs are actually smarter than dogs they are yeah pigs are like one of the smartest things like i feel like it's don't like this isn't probably exact but it's like dolphins whales and like chimpanzees and elephants and pigs and the dogs what about gorillas 
What about Harambe? What about Harambe? <laughs> We're keeping that. Yeah, I don't know. This is because, yeah, I, I guess factoring in the level of intelligence is an important, in the animal is an important question to consider because there's a scene in the comic where someone, they find a bunch of fish that have been stepped on and people are like, oh, they're just fish. It doesn't matter. But then when the dog is suffering, everyone is very upset by it. And the kid, I forget the name of the kid, but he looks like a fish. And he's like, yeah, but I identify more with those fish because that's what I look like. And that's what I identify with. So how is that less screwed up than the dog? So that's a very interesting ethical question that I was not able to resolve in the comic. And I'm not able to resolve right now. Sorry. That's totally fine. No, I like that you challenged me. I respect that a lot. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for challenging me on that. But I'm trying to be on both sides of the argument. Yeah, yeah. No, you got to be devil's advocate. I totally understand. Well, maybe it is a part of uh, the whole identification. I mean, like Mark said, like dogs are very companion based. And like that's very evident in what Gene says with the dog's experiences. And, um, you know, dogs are not eaten, at least in several cultures. And I mean, yes, pigs are but like but pigs are also like companion pets and like it's just kind of because of our culture that we don't have them mainly as pets like also one of my favorite recent like meme type posts was like story of this guy and he had two pit bulls and he got like what he thought was a micro pig off craigslist but it turned out just to be a piglet so now he has like an enormous like full-size pig and then two pit bulls and they just like the Pig thinks it's a pit bull. <laughs> That's so awesome. And it lives but, in his house and stuff. And like, it's he's like, yeah, it's literally just like I have three dogs. Yeah, I but, had I had this like friend who had a cat growing up with dogs, and the cat was behaving like one hundred percent like a dog. The cat probably thought it was a dog, so that's that's kind of awesome, Dylan. Yeah, so I just wonder how much that has to do with like just like if you grow up with the animal or like how much. I I feel like this is like a part of our culture that uh, and i think it's been like really apparent that obviously many of us seem to to kind of value a dog's life higher than than a pig's life in in factory farming for instance i hire a dog i value a dog's life higher than a human life in a lot of cases yeah but like but i i just think it's interesting that this is like in this comic it's it's out of all animals it's a dog which we I guess many humans' favorite animal is dogs. So yeah, many but, Western people, I think. Is yeah, Western, yes. But, I sh- yeah, I should have added that. That's very true. But again, I think the the great thing about this comic is that it's able to make you think and challenge you on a lot of things that you probably haven't been challenged before. You know, I still haven't come up with the justification, my personal justification for your question. And I think that's a good thing. And I think that's why comics are important because they have this ability to challenge us in a way that a lot of other media can also do. But we have to recognize that comics are just as capable of that. They are, yes. And I think in the case of this comic, it's just interesting how the light motive is like about whether intelligence or whether belonging to one species is relevant at all. Dallin? Yeah, I was just thinking how this kind of goes hand in hand with our first segment, with just talking about, like, when is it crossing a line to kill, like, an apocalypse with it's a child or, like, a friend or, like, sacrificing the one for the many or vice versa. I was thinking, like, I wonder how much the species of animal matters and not the species, then, like, when is, I guess, not sacrificing animals pushing a line for sacrificing humans for like a food source that sort of stuff all right gabby i also think that the sort of apprehensions we have about killing certain species of animals versus other ones have to do with like this very in my mind 
false and kind of artificial notion of like what function these animals have in our lives and because dogs and cats have been domesticated and have like live been living as companion and work animals alongside humans for like like a long amount of time we see them as we we're we're able to extend more empathy towards them because they've sort of grown up with us so to speak as a species and and we value them for their emotional like for their sort of like companionship and like their emotional value to us and conversely even though pigs have the same capacity to provide that kind of companionship because of their history of being domestic like livestock we don't see them as having that same utility in terms of like providing us happiness so i think that the a part of the work that i believe would be useful to be done in terms of how we interact with other species not just and this is not to say that people shouldn't have pets or people shouldn't have meat but just to to think consciously about where our biases come from in terms of like how we think about these animals as they function in our lives and in our culture and not to like just be like ah you know you know what i mean like I personally love dogs and cats, but I realize that a lot of my love of dogs and cats comes from like a kind of, you know, it's not super, it's not super altruistic and it's not super like, it's coming from the culture, you know? Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with what you're saying. I think it's a great point that you bring up the cultural influences that this has on us, but also like the utility aspect, because I've always been wondering what about the utility for the animals and like what about how we like what would a non-speciesist utilitarian say how do we justify any of that like with bentham's utilitarian i absolutely agree i'm but, just i'm i was speaking more to like where the biases come from i yeah, do not true. think that you know i don't yeah i i would agree with what you were saying right than but i didn't i don't want to get too much into that because mark and then justin also had something to add to this okay this is more me playing devil's advocate so in i like that so in grant morris in one of the grant morrison books he talks about how the only reason humans are able to justify eating meat is because might makes right Yes. And we eat meat because we can and we because we can dominate another species. But does that not also occur in nature? Does not also animal suffering occur in nature for another species to eat? Like rabbits cry out when they get bitten by wolves. I would love to argue against that. But first off, does any one of you want to add something to that yeah. point? Ooh. This this is I, a question I came up I with would, when I was reading I would, I, Okay. I would like to, I would like to, well, first of all, here's one thing I'm going to say. I'm going to say that the devil, he doesn't need any more advocates. He's got enough of them. <laughs> and secondly, I think that Maybe the thing that sets humans apart is not our ability to dominate other things, but our ability to not dominate other things. And like, we Ooh. don't have to dominate other things is a thing. Like that's how like advanced we are. We've advanced past the point of having to like depend on eating animals to survive. And we don't need to do it. Like literally one of the best, like the one of like the, like the bigger American weightlifters He's like, he like is on our Olympic team. He's a vegan. Like, so that people, there's a like protein argument. Like, yeah, it's like a money thing, but like, and like, I totally get that. And that's like why I don't buy like vegan stuff a lot of the time. But like, and, I'm, and like, that's probably what's going to happen before I like, I'll make money before I become vegan, vegan. But like, and like, but yeah, like, sorry, I lost my train of thought like completely. No, that's, but, a, but that's, I, a, that's a good answer. I that's understand that though, really. Like, Oh, wait, Gabby, you want to go next? And maybe then I'll, I'll just add something to that. 
yeah i mean i think that we can get into a sort of into a frame of arguing i mean clownfish eat their young does that mean we should be able to eat their young no and i think it's more about like our own sort of it's not if if there was a paradigm in which we needed to eat animals in order to survive then i think yeah we could you could bring in the natural analogy but given the fact that i i would say this is i have to qualify this statement by saying that like for not all people on the globe is a non-animal product based diet possible but for but for many many more people than realize it it we can probably narrow that down to the western world would you agree yeah, absolutely. Yes. And and but even in the western world, I mean like there are places in New York where you couldn't live without eating animal products because so. of, because uh because of just food deserts, you know. So it's right. not just about the western world versus it's it's about, you know, other stuff, but like I'm saying generally that for most people, I would I would I would hazard a massive generalization, but I would say for most people in the US, the the extent to which we consume meat is not like compulsory for a healthy healthy life. In fact, it's actually like deleterious to health. And so it's not I guess like it's not like I said before it's not about like getting more people to be vegetarian or whatever, it's about people to be like more conscious about their meat choices if they are going to consume meat. I feel like I want to add something to that and well as I said I'm really strongly opinionated when it comes to that kind of going off what you said about nearly everyone being able in the western world or most of people in the US being able to adopt a vegan diet I think when it comes to health reasons there is a really like small number of people who wouldn't survive on a vegan diet but we could figure something out for them as well if we could as humankind create the economic circumstances for everyone on the planet to be able to i don't want to say afford vegan diets because some vegan diets are aren't even that expensive but then again some with like a lot of meat substitutes. i spend like 50 dollars a week on food that's <laughs> not that much like yeah right but there are like a lot of vegan diets where you would like eat a lot of meat substitutes that are arguably expensive so i also get like the economic and anti-classicist argument of that what i'm saying is that we could as humankind for everyone create the circumstances for them to be able to live vegan and i think that since we were talking about utility from the animal's perspective that would make sense and it's also a matter of well going off what you were saying about the rule of nature i feel like mark yeah i feel like it's a slippery slope to justifying things that we can do because we can do them and because we don't have to deal with the consequences of it just like ages ago we could hold slaves or we we could uh, suppress minorities even worse than we could right now what i'm saying is what i'm saying is that adopting these naturalistic like the the things that happen in nature and adopting them to like this uh, social context whether it's between humans or between humans and animals that is at least on the road to social darwinism and I, f I feel like I want to distance myself from that. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. I agree with what you guys have said. I was just, that was a thought that popped into my head right. that was complicating my reading of this comic, and I was curious to hear what you guys had to say about it. No, it's really interesting that we would get into this, this side discussion, and thank you for bringing up that point, too. This You're welcome. Thank you. I think this is an interesting question. Kane Marco, aka the Juggernaut, brings up a point in this comic how animals' interests should not be taken into account because of the sheer fact that they are animals, because they are not humans. And even though he's clearly antagonized in the comic 
or by the comics writer and has a little change of change of hearts by the end of a comic. Does any of you want to play devil's advocate here and say that he probably has a point with that, Mark? I would love to because I'm Thank on this you. point. I'm not trying to defend his actions. I'm just trying to explain how they make sense to him, which is that he grew up, if I understand correctly, in an abusive household where his father would just beat him all the time. Correct? Right? I think so, yes. Yes. So for him, he might makes right is all he knows. And that's why it makes sense that his superpower is to just be this unstoppable force, uh, just breaking down all barriers in his way. And it's always been a very simple way for him to think and for him to live by. So he stuck with it because just was uncomplicated and an easy way to go through life. And I think that the great character development in this issue occurs when that's challenged. So again, not trying to justify what he right. said or done. I'm just saying that to him, it makes sense. And I think that, like I said earlier, like the way people justify themselves, I think is really fascinating. And I think it's really important that we talk about it because it's a key to understanding person's own personal philosophy that's that's very true and i love how we yeah, kind of get into his perspective and I, i thought that your comments were really in-depth that being said the argument that he puts forward is not only an argument that is not an argument that would only come from someone uh, living in an abusive household the argument that disregarding the interests of these animals is okay is not is a very common argument i would actually say in discussions about veganism in yeah, my it, in my opinion it's a speciesist argument but maybe someone some of you will argue want to argue against that no i completely agree i i know that when i my parents are both very christian and when i decided to stop eating meat they were part of the reason that they were sort of perturbed by that is because in the bible it says like man should inherit the earth which i thought I recently was informed by a very intelligent friend of mine was a translation issue. And in the King James Version, which was happening during the Enlightenment, they said man should inherit the earth because it's more humanist. But in previous translations of the Bible, it was a bit more like man shall be custodian over the earth. Damn. And so <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, which is that's mad really cool, which is really, really like was like, wow. But I think a lot of that is like, you know, I think that the U.S., for better or for worse, is very much like steeped in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And a lot of that has thinking has to do with man being like the soul, the, you know, the, the, the center of all action in the world and that all beings on Earth are are in service to man's action and i don't believe that so right. i would subscribe to the idea that like speciesism is as much of a issue as any other types of marginal marginalizing and right, an identity an identity or an identity category would you obviously agree with that this has given me a lot to think about Dylan, i just i just want to say this Bauchi? is this is Just from a personal standpoint, this has been really cool. That's um, that's great. That's yeah, what yeah. That's I what mean, we're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I could ever become a vegetarian or a vegan, but I guess the next step then is to think about how to make attempts at ethically consuming meat. And like, I mean, you, you, you hear the news, they, they have been able to quote unquote, like, grow meat in labs from cells. I am really hyped about that. That is really cool. I'm probably... I'm I make a mean dry spice rub for steaks, and if I could do that on something that came out of a lab, what a world that would be! I would. Yeah, but why? Why can't you 
be vegetarian? Why don't you think you could do it? I don't know. I think I think I've just fallen on the crutch of meat too much. I feel like it's it's I it's just something that I've taken too much enjoyment in through whatever fault of my own. Yo, I love cheese, but if you don't eat meat, I won't eat cheese. (gasps) That's so good. I feel like there's a lot of like good life decisions (laughs) like deriving from this podcast. No, but I'm sorry. But in all seriousness, I'm sorry for uh, quote unquote attacking you once again and playing devil's advocate once again. But based on what we've evaluated like in the previous segments about, well, about moral responsibility to reduce suffering and about utilitarianism, weighing like the suffering of you not eating meat and like the suffering of the affected animals against each other and like taking into account like the moral responsibility we have is that something you could see yourself like changing about yet like your dude marius you are going in right now i'm, I'm sorry Lord. i'm really uh, this is just dude, this is f- this this ruined oh my god this is like scared straight i'm i'm sorry this is like scared straight man like <laughs> this is just, but in all seriousness <sighs> Dear, um, <laughs> dear audience, I'm not trying to ruin everyone's anyone's life. I'm not trying to judge anyone. This is like really just me playing devil's advocate. Uh, and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> you are doing a really good job of it. Oh, God. Sorry. The devil is proud. The devil is proud. Damn. Mark, you should put that in your comic. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. I don't have a response oh, but, to that. But Dellen has a response. I yes, guess. he does. Dellen with the safe. Thank you. I'll help you out as a fellow non-vegetarian or non-vegan. You know, just the fact that you mentioned, like, that it might be, like, you think maybe it's, like, a crush or something, like, I don't think that's something that can be dismissed. Like, I think the way people are raised can be a huge thing. And, I mean, like, we just were talking about the Bible and such. And it's, like, a lot of people's religions are determined because of the way they're raised. And, like, and if you ask them, oh, why do you have this one and not this other religion or no religion at all? It's, like, sometimes it's just kind of an innate thing. And I mean, sometimes it's not and you should change, but if you want to, but I mean, I don't think everyone can be blamed for not changing. And the other thing is going back to the point of food being an intense cultural experience. I think that for my own personal beliefs, I don't want to deprive myself of that. Yes. If that makes sense. It, it does okay. make sense. It's and I and I understand that because my family's from the South, like yeah. Southern, <laughs> there black, you go. like, and I have to tell you, it is a struggle, like going to visit my family members, going to the barbecue, like going to the cookout and then Damn. being like, oh, I can only eat corn. And then everyone just being like, what is wrong with you? And it's like, it's not, it's, it's not, no, it's no small thing. So I totally yeah. get where you're coming from. Yeah. I, and I just as, as a person, I, I try to like, I, those are things that I want to try. I want to tr- like do the Southern barbecue thing. My girlfriend has gotten me into some fantastic Mexican food, both vegetarian and non-vegetarian. So as as just a human being trying to experience life, that's I've I've welcomed it. And now for me, it's about finding a way to ethically welcome it. Yeah, uh, but I guess my question would be: Don't you have a responsibility? Or w- wouldn't you say, like, the responsibility to, like, ignore the desire for, like, that stuff and then not do it? I mean, I guess there is, but that also varies person to person, I would say, as Dellen was touching on. I, w- I just want to throw in right now 
that I'm I'm really proud of us for having this debate like in this manner. This is not something Ooh. to be taken for granted. And yeah, also, this, is, this like, is intense, man. It's also al like 2 a.m. So. And also like defending Mark's point of view after I've been really cruel to him. I'm so sorry. That's fine. Uh, I'll just beat you up in the parking lot later. <laughs> but no, in all seriousness... What parking lot? <laughs> this is horrible. Force feed you meatloaf. No. <laughs> oh, no. But in all seriousness, really after like... On a serious note, I feel like it's completely understandable not to be giving up the entire meat consumption after listening to this podcast or after having this debate or any debate like that. Because I know myself, I know I've uh, the first vegetarian discussion I had, I was probably really rude. Then the second one I had, I was probably like, yeah, I'm going to be a vegetarian. And then that lasted for half a day. So... And right now, I mean, I'm trying to go vegan and I'm going to go vegan, but I know myself. More power to you, dude. Like, I'm, you do you, I'm bro. I'm going to finish my piece of pizza after recording this podcast and I don't feel proud of that. And I feel like, first of all, obviously, it's okay to have another opinion. But then again, even if you feel like compelled by the vegetarian and vegan argument, sorry, it's like... I just had eyes on that non empty, yeah, half slice of pizza <laughs> lying there. So. No, it's mine. But like, <laughs> none of us is Peter Parker. None of us is Spider-Man. It's okay to not be perfect, but we're all going to do... Uh, we can all, always do something about it. And it's all I'm saying. I'm not judging Dallin. And just like, as Mark said, like, just if you do eat meat, trying to do it ethically is a very noble pursuit. Yes. And I think like with producing meat in tanks from cells can be a good start to that. And also just good animal raising conditions and all that sort of stuff. Plus, I think it's just f***ing cool that we can just grow meat now. That's I like am constantly amazed by the wonders of modern science. So Welcome I think that's the future. Yeah, for real. That's so f***ing cool, man. Like I think think it's very important to be constantly amazed by technology and the things that we can do now because I think that's how you keep your childlike sense of wonder alive. But right. that's beside the point. But yeah, after we've been in this like really admittedly awesome discussion about veganism vegetarianism meat consumption in general i really like this discussion but i feel like we got to get more into comic books right now so gene is obviously not the only character or fictional character in superhero mainstream media with the ability to show this sort of like enhanced empathy towards non-human animals we talked about this this is like the number one like reason for comic book vegetarians to be vegetarians where they have this like enhanced ability that grants them this kind of sympathy with animals there are a lot of them actually some of them who are portrayed as vegetarians at least once i guess would say are pretty surprising there's animal man obviously there's beast boy from the teen titans go cartoon but also actually wonder woman and superman in some comics so i i don't know let's talk about these did some of those surprise you did you find like the motives understandable Mark. Superman did not surprise me because Superman's a f***ing boy scout. So it makes yes, sense that he, he would be a vegetarian or vegan. That's all I really have to say about that. I hate Superman because he's a boy scout. But I Dellen, feel, I kind of feel that. Dellen, then Justin. None of those surprised me because because you mentioned earlier that like about percentages and just like I don't think food is necessarily shown very often at all in comics. And so I feel like it's just very easy and good step towards supporting vegetarianism and veganism just by pointing out the diets of these heroes i think it's like right easy step that just wasn't addressed before and it's a good thing to address mm, gabby 
One thing I always like to think about when I am reading superhero comics is superheroes as a like vessel for like the aspirational values of a culture and so whenever we see like a really mainstream popular superhero with some sort of like kind of fringe identity i think it's super cool like it's cool that like two of the most famous superheroes ever could have an alternative diet that's based in empathy for animals that's and so that cool. and so i th- so i think that's what's really interesting especially in as much as like superman as much as he is kind of like a you know a graham cracker like as a person like he's also <laughs> like he's also you know like very much an encapsulation of a lot of like american values and i feel like that's cool that the writers chose to give him that diet because it normalizes vegetarianism and on the one hand but it also makes it seem like something worth aspiring towards not something yes. just being derisive of derisive what how do you say that word derisive of i mean i like for the sake of context i'll probably have to add that there are a lot of like different as we all know there are a lot of different like superhero canons and there are a lot of different representations of some characters and this is one of tense like dozens in this like particular superman story he's a vegetarian but it's not he's not a vegetarian in every story same goes for wonder woman and yeah but i definitely agree with what you were saying about that and yes i think it makes sense that they would be that and it normalizes and maybe like even makes it something worth aspiring in the sense that maybe a lot of children, but even a lot of grown-ups seen, have seen these characters as role models. Anyone want to add something about that, or are we moving on? Mark? I just want to say Graham Cracker is the perfect phrase I've heard to describe Superman. It is, I'm yes. going to move on from calling him Boy Scout to Graham Cracker, so thank you for that, Gabby. You're welcome, always. So, by now, we have all thrown around the term speciesism a lot. At least me. <laughs> well, whatever. But <laughs> Well, uh, whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry. But other than, say, racism or sexism or whatever other ism there is, it's a pretty hard-to-define term, I would say. And again, Peter Singer, he defines speciesism as allowing the interests of your own species to override the greater interests of another species. Not the interests of other species in general, but like the greater interests of other species. Now, this is important for the sake of argument to know that that doesn't mean that if you think a cockroach has less moral standing than a human, your species is. That's not what Peter Singer is saying at all. That's like, you can totally say that you could totally make a case for that and still be anti-speciesist. Because obviously, when we're talking about degrees of sentience, there is a difference between a human being and a cockroach. Well, and there's this one scene in Animal Man, also by Grant Morrison just like we're free which is a great comic you should check that out we didn't have time to talk about that today where body the main character states that he would save lab rats from being experimented on for the purpose of cancer research because he thinks that a rat's life is just as important as a human life morally speaking and this is kind of contradictory to the earlier definition of speciesism but what do you guys think should we aspire like this complete egalitarianism when it comes to moral standing or can you be anti-speciesist and still distinguish between degrees of sentience, Mark? I think it might be important to apply some utilitarianism to this situation. Yes, my because, favorite. Yeah, because, you know, 
if you have 10 rats that you're experimenting on for cancer research and all 10 of those rats die, but because of what you've learned, you're able to save, say, 100 people from having cancer. These are made up numbers. But still, I think it's important to bring that utilitarian philosophy in to animal research because obviously there is a lot of good that can be come of that i'm not saying that all animal research is completely ethical i'm just saying that there can be some good that comes out of it i agree with what you're saying and i think it's important to do animal research in a way that's ethical so that we can benefit that's very true humanity without hurting too many animals i i actually peter singer would also agree with what you're saying because peter singer is a huge fan of utilitarianism and so am i he's also my bro he is my bro as well. I hope so. I, at least I hope so. I wish he could hear this. Shout out to Peter Singer. In Shout case out he's listening. P-Sing. That being said, I want to play devil's ad- advocate once again and say, if we sacrifice one red's life for possibly for the sake of many human lives, couldn't we do that with humans? Couldn't we sacrifice human lives as well? And what's the difference? Or are we? Well, really- isn't isn't that the apocalypse argument? It is kind of, but isn't it the apocalypse argument with the rat as well? What's the difference? I feel like Gabby has something to say about this. Yeah, she does. I have so much trouble with this. My background in my undergraduate studies, I studied neuroscience. I worked in a lot of labs. I have personally killed a lot of mice. And I did it at the time before I was vegan because you have to do like tissues you know tissue slides and you just kill a bunch of mice and the mice are raised to for this purpose and undoubtedly we've made a lot of advances in our understanding of our own biology and of different sort of treatments and stuff because of this kind of study but now at this point in my life I can't do that kind of work anymore just because I can't you know, in the view of my conscience, I can't do that. However, I think that Mark brings up a really good point that we have to be able to apply a utilitarian argument when we think right. of these testing. And I think that it's all about like in both of our in our conversation of veganism and vegetarianism and now in our conversation of animal testing and animal experimentation, we need to try to minimize the amount of suffering that we cause as a result of these kind of practices because unfortunately without animal models a lot of the basis of laboratory science would just be gone like yes and yeah also, and that would be a huge loss but at the same time i can think of even in my own lab the lives of those mice were not valued so perhaps if we could conduct these sorts of experiments with the knowledge and with the belief that the lives of these mice have value and treating them with the same type of value that we would treat a early stage like human test subject for like an experimental treatment, then perhaps we could move towards a more ethical way of dealing with animal testing. Mark? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, animal testing is important because if we don't test on the animals first, we don't know how a human's going to react to it. So if we just go straight to human trials, I mean, guaranteed that's probably not how it works. I don't, I never worked in a lab. I'd- we did do human trials on people like directly and it was bad. Yeah, exactly. Like if you do it directly, it's going to be and, bad. Yeah, so there has to be some kind of frame of reference. Right. And we like did when, it secretly. Yeah, yeah but Tuskegee. Still, yeah, but yeah. still then we're less valuing the animal lives and we're willing to do that with the animals because they are animals and when we were doing it with humans it's because they valued those humans less than other humans yeah so i feel like 
we're stuck in like kind of like dilemma where oh we've come to the conclusion that the test subjects will always be valued less than the first test subjects will be valued less and that may or may not be problematic isn't that true of any human achievement is that the like probably yes i mean like you look at there's a great Louis C.K. bit where he says that people look at the pyramids and wonder, how did that get built? And he says they just threw people they don't care about, they, people they didn't care about, like, at that pyramid until it was built. Yeah, but, I mean, I don't want to get in, into that discussion right now because yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. like, a lot and has, it doesn't have anything to do with it uh, vegetarianism. No. And Sorry about that. No, it's, it's a good point, though, because the question could be asked, are human achievements always something that, that others have to be sacrificed for who how do we determine who has to be sacrificed for that hold on a second and is there always utilitarianism in the game but i yes. can name like a thousand inventions or innovations that didn't require people to die right that that's a good point apart from that though kind of getting back to the original question yeah we've evaluated like a lot about like the value of human life versus the value of animal life so i think we would argue that a human life is arguably to be valued more than a mice's life. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. So I think we... If I had to choose between a mouse and a person, I would choose to save, I would choose the person. Right. I feel like that depends on the person, too. Absolutely. <laughs> if it was um, Mickey Mouse versus Donald Trump, yeah, Mickey exactly. Mouse all the We're way. We're definitely going to get death threats for saying that. But <laughs> oh no, I'm going to personally get death threats. I love Trump. Trump 2016. Make America great again. Dicks out for Harambe. <laughs> oh no, am I Marius, I'm going to die because I just said that. Oh shit, it's they're okay. coming now. <laughs> it's okay, we're all going to die. But apart, okay, apart from Trump, apart from anything about that let's move on to the next question so oh, no. getting into the last few questions on the vegetarianism segment i think we discussed a lot right now i'm really proud of us but this is always, some of this isn't really comic book related so let's kind of get back into actual like comic books we read for this so during the last pages of grant morrison's animal animal man run in issue 26 which is extremely meta because he himself kind of enters the comic book and has a conversation with the main character and he states that he's been struggling with wanting to bring attention to these really, really important topics. By the way, he's a vegetarian himself. But he was worried about possibly like sounding too preachy in the process. Can you get behind kind of that like struggle a lot of vegetarian comic book writers find themselves in? And do you think that he was being too preachy about it? Mark? I thought it was really interesting to hear this perspective from Morrison himself in comic book form because yes. I think that you know you talk about a writer's voice and it's so rare that in a comic book in a superhero comic book you get to hear the writer speaking directly to the reader and at first at first I thought this was pretentious and very preachy but he did it in such a way that it I really found myself enjoying it because, you know, he says like, oh, I'm going to have Animal Man, I'm going to have you be attacked by these two villains. And then like in the background, he's getting torn apart by these villains. And right. then he's like, I'd like to thank the following people. So that's when he really won me over in the comic. I, I want to say it was like really self-aware. And yeah, yeah, it was great. I mean, I wasn't sold on it immediately, but I eventually got on board. And as far as writers being preachy goes, I think that writing for an audience like the people who read a superhero comic is a really 
great privilege to have in terms of the amount of people you can reach. So if you think yes. that there is a an issue that you're passionate about that you want to talk about, I think, you know, great power, great responsibility. So Damn. You, so I think that you should talk about it because I love I, it. if even if, you know, I'm not a vegetarian, uh, but this did give me a lot to think about. And I think that's important for comics and for art in general is that it challenges your beliefs and it makes you think about the way you act or live a certain way it makes you challenge your yourself and i think that's a really great thing about comics so was it preachy like probably i felt it was preachy but i didn't think that was necessarily a bad thing i just want to add dallin you can make your point real quick i just wanted to add real quick that like from my perspective as a vegetarian i often perceive this like discussions as like people being offended by the fact that we exist oh no i wasn't, I wasn't no, no, i'm not talking about you i know you're not talking about me i i can Yeah, I mean, like, vegetarians do exist, and if you have a problem with that, like, grow up. and That's very true. But, like, I don't know, I, I feel like it's always a discussion about people feeling accused of being, like, murderers. And a lot of people accuse others of being murderers for, for eating meat, which I don't agree with. Because that doesn't solve the problem. That's, that's very true. That's not effective in that way. It's not productive for the discussion. Yeah. So I'm not really into that. But I will note that in this entire discussion with Dellen and I being the only convert carnivores in this conversation, at no point were any of uh, any of you mean or hateful towards us because of how we choose to live our lives. And I appreciate that a lot. And I think that leads to some of the great discussion that we've had here today. Thank you. Yes. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you guys are on the podcast and you guys are, like giving your perspective into that. Because if we were just like a bunch of vegetarians, like circle jerking and just agreeing trumping with on each celery. other. I thought you said trumping on celery for a second Hell there. No, I was never really say confused. That. But it's like, in that case, I feel like people would perceive this as like us just accusing others and trying to take stuff away from them. And I'm just really, I think it's not easy as a vegetarian to bring that point across in a manner that's that's like productive because people are very sensitive about the topic. That being said, yeah, I, I get the struggle of Grant Morrison and I think the self-awareness within the comic book makes people more empathetic towards that. Yeah, at no point was I ever, when I was reading this, was I thinking about Grant Morrison being like, you know, what a pretentious hippie like he yes. just thinks he's better than me i i was thinking like when i was reading this i'm like wow this is really honest this is really weird yes. real that's what i'm responding to more so than because he was just so convinced about how his personal beliefs were affecting his writing and he was right. speaking about that in such an honest manner i i just really had to give him props for that dallon did you want to add something you had your hand up yeah going off of what both you marius and mark said I think that definitely in that last run and the whole animal man run, he's he's undeniably preachy, but that's not a bad thing because right, as I Mark said, it challenges certain things and it's just as I've an avid reader and writer and I know that just like in any medium of writing, whether that's comic books or film or books, it's just that sometimes you can try to be subtle with making certain messages and sometimes you can be really preachy and either way, it's just like I love reading thought-provoking things and really enjoyed animal yes. man and it's just yeah sometimes it's really effective and good to just be very clear about the statement you're making that's what we need i guess gabby i read the trade of animal man and i would have to say that i didn't i am a vegan so maybe i'm a little bit more primed to accept these sort of things but Same. i didn't i didn't think that it was overly preachy what i thought was now i'm gonna get a little bit weird here but just 
stick with me. Bring it on. So I think a lot of the way that we re- like we relate to our s- each other, like in terms of human difference and in terms of human animal difference, has to do with Descartes and has to do with the mind body duality. And it's kind of brought forth a, a, a certain sort of egocentrism that gives us a like a human hegemony, right? That like our form of thought defines our place in the universe and makes us separate from all other beings animal man being able to commune so you know closely with animals i think goes against and and also just in his character he's not like he's not a thinker you know he's kind of like a guy who's just doing it like as it comes along he's working you know he's just improvising and he's not this super heady person and i think that that is kind of like effective in thinking about not being so dominated by the way in which our brains work and the way in which we experience consciousness and the fact that other animals don't can experience consciousness in the same way that we do that that makes them lesser and so i felt like his reaction to injustice as he became more attuned to his powers and as he became more attuned to the injustices in the world was a natural one i mean if you can be so close to animals and you actually see the breadth of the violences that are committed against them i don't think it would be preachy to be like okay he's gonna react to this i think that that's a natural reaction so when i read so i actually kind of read them out of order like i read the 26th issue and then i read the trade but then i went back and read the last issue and i and i think that grant morrison was having the anxiety that i think a lot of vegetarians and vegans have maybe me including yeah me including as well like that's maybe just a little unwarranted because most of us aren't going around pouring blood on people wearing fur coats yeah but that's like the prejudice right right? and that but that exactly but that's the prejudice and because of that prejudice and that fear of like of being seen as like an evangelical vegan or an evangelical vegetarian like militant not listening like accusing person we over censor ourselves perhaps and that's not unwarranted and that's not unwarranted right because a lot of these discussions can end up in tears (laughs) and like arguing and yelling and people feeling very defensive because of you know reasons but i think that like i saw what i enjoyed in that sort of meta issue was seeing my own sort of like you know my own sort of apprehensions about speaking to friends or speaking to close ones about my dietary choices and about my worldview as is reflected in my dietary choices and not really knowing what the line is between having a you know collegial discussion like we've had here or like being misconstrued as like accusing someone of being an asshole what that's actually exactly how I feel. I Yeah, as I said, I, I'm really stoked about the fact that we have both sides of the argument on the podcast and that we have all the different like perceptions. And it's been interesting for me to hear that, well... We didn't, well, we didn't really perceive it as preachy, but U.S. media would say that it's arguably preachy, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. So, uh, Dallin? Just, I think, like what you're talking about with Animal Man, I think like he, yeah, probably not too many preachy moments with that, but just like I thought the whole... There was some really preachy moments, like when there's like a whole right. f- four pages dedicated to like showing after what's his name merges the bad doctor with the gorilla, and then they're like experimenting on the gorilla with the human looking eyes. I don't it, think that was preachy. It's just like that. There's so many shots dedicated to it, but like again, I don't think I that's that. bad. And but it's just would like, you it's say just like it was, a moment? But would you say preachiness. I'll be okay? And the devil just got another advocate. Oh no! And her name is Gabby. Beans. Doctor okay, Gabby. So, Dr. Gabby Beans. 
So would you say the same thing if instead of an ape with human-like eyes, it was a baby with human-like eyes? Yes. I would call that preachy. As a writer, I would call any, like, four pages dedicated to something like that but i've Preach. for sure that. seen that in like so many comics where they'll be like and then they slapped him and then they slapped him more yeah they and definitely yeah like they definitely devote that to like sex scenes hell yeah yeah it's like making why? a statement it's i a get good, that it's like it's right. an effective thing i do think but I'm, that's what i mean by preaching. i, I oh, feel okay, like cool. we, we need to end this discussion about preachiness i feel like all the points that everyone made were really interesting and very insightful that being said it's time to wrap up the vegetarianism segment and get into the conclusion segment in which some of you are going to bring in their own ideas for comics that include those ethical those ethical kind of like dilemmas in superhero comics. A last single question to wrap up vegetarianism kind of segment. Well, after all the research I did for the article I wrote, I felt like there's a lot of uncharted territory and a lot of potential when it comes to superheroes enabling the reader to recognize the animal's perspective. It's been done a lot, but I feel like I feel like there's room for more. And in, in the Comics Verse podcast, we talked a lot about how comic books like X-Men very early would start speaking out against sexism, racism, otherization, marginalization in general. So do you think that with the increasing number of vegetarians and vegans in the not-too-distant future, comic books could start speaking out against speciesism more and promote animal rights and vegetarianism on a larger scale? Do you think that would even be necessary? I mean, that's another point to discuss. I don't see why not. I think that something that you pointed out in the Age of Apocalypse comics podcast that was really cool that I had never thought about was the fact that comics have always been on the forefront of talking about different social issues. So, I mean, it would make sense if that were to happen because that's how it's happened for things before, like with, you know, X-Men in the 60s, just replacing the word like civil rights with mutant rights, I guess, is pretty much so what it boiled down to. Yes. So I think... That is something that we will see happening, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing for people to challenge their way of thinking, and I think it's a way that comics can continue to be relevant in the future. Next, Justin, one sentence. I'm I, sorry. I, I, I think I had three. Three is okay. Okay. I think that there's definitely a final frontier in comics when it comes to covering certain things, and I could definitely see animal rights being among issues that comics still need to tackle i think sexual abuse is definitely another one yeah i think that it would only help comics and only help people for comics to get into animal rights more and i think that as the medium progresses and as the audience who enjoys the medium progress that it should be covered more and will be covered more anyone else got anything to add otherwise i would definitely agree with what you said what about the others so I think we're pretty much on the same page when it comes to that. So that's how we're going to wrap this segment for now. Definitely going to look forward to the future and see what vegetarianism and vegan, especially veganism in comic books is going to bring us. Maybe 10 years from now, we'll be seeing this conversation as like really interesting. Moving on to our last segment for today, our conclusion segment, for which some of you have brought their own questions for comics you dig into the mix. And based on what we talked about in the segments before, we'll have a quick discussion about each of them. Really, really quick and to the point, I hope. Let's start with Dylan, who has prepared some questions about this comic animosity, which was well, strictly speaking, it's not a superhero comic, but still I think it's pretty fitting to what we were talking about in the vegetarianism segment. Dylan, please. Yeah, animosity was 
was just published recently by Aftershock, and it's a great comic that Marius and I read. I don't know how many others read it, but it's great. And in it, all animals, in like one single moment, suddenly are able to talk and think exactly like humans. In fact, it's a little weird how much they think like humans. They make a lot of animal puns just like the title, Animosity. But really early on, right when they transform and all these rats are repeating the words of this human who was experimenting on them and calling them rat bastards, they call him rat bastards and kill him, almost eating him alive. And then right after that is this part where God is and the Bible are quoted. And this made me think of Gabby's mention of like the mistranslation where like, you know, humans aren't supposed to have so much power. And in this, God says that, made plants for both humans and animals to eat and there's nothing about humans eating animals or vice versa so this really like for me brought to attention that all readers and everyone even like even though animals in real life can't talk they're still under judgment and not being judged by these animals in the comic and so they could be judged by god or other religions or other people or even ourselves so how much do you all think like public judgment and scrutiny and guilt have to do with vegetarianism and for the vegetarians in the room like as a follow-up question to that also like how much of it do you think was an individual choice or like a public societal influence or that sort of thing mark i gotta say that you guys challenging me on my decision not to be a vegetarian or a vegan vegan was was the use of <laughs> that that kind of guilt no 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 no, no. i'm not saying that's a bad thing i'm no, just no, no. i'm just having it vegan yeah, oh me too vegan sorry for having it's okay it's uh, almost 3 a.m it's almost 3 a.m i'm not super it's actually almost midnight we can't all be living it up in california Yeah, but i've only been here for like three days so it's still kind of okay let's keep on like yeah i think I, i think that my own personal feelings of feeling like i was cornered feeling like you guys were making some really good points shows that guilt is a powerful force but I didn't want you to feel no, 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 no. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing. I, we were <laughs> still able to have a civil discussion about it. That's something. And I know you didn't do any of that intending for me to feel that way. Okay. So yeah, no, I, I think that does show the the level of power that rhetoric can have and that arguments for either side can have. So I think that's very important to keep that in mind. I don't know if I that mean, totally made sense, but I think that you know all of the animals and animosity. I think they're all justified in a lot of ways and it's really interesting to see how different animals react to humans because you know there's the dog who protects the young girl but then there's also the rats and the crows who just want to kill every human they see so it's the cow who's like you don't have to do this that was yeah yeah winning me over i loved the cat who goes up to the man sleeping in his bed and he says if you hit her again i will claw your that's so cat like. I love that is totally what a cat would do. I love that. Marius? Well, this is interesting because I actually I didn't become a vegetarian because I was pressured into that, but I became a vegetarian after spending a lot of time with my band girlfriend and some of my best friends who were also vegetarian slash vegan. And it's just interesting going from there and kind of like getting into the arguments and then adopting like that that mentality and at some point feeling guilty. And that being, like, the fact of it. I mean, I was like, okay, I can try vegetarianism. But then thinking more about it, I was like, am I going to eat this? No, I'm not going to eat this. And I started becoming vegetarian, like, several days earlier than I originally intended. And it's like, guilt did play a role. I don't think it has to because I'm a huge fan of Peter Singer. And some of what he's always been saying is that... I think this is, like, a really good example for that various uh, story in his book. the Not the life you can save, but... 
another book about effective altruism in which he tells the story about a autistic person who says about himself that he's been struggling with empathy for his entire life but the the basis on which he grounds his morality which i guess is utilitarian morality is logic and morality can come from logic so just because we don't feel any empathy doesn't mean we can't do the right thing for the right reasons and that's why i think that for a lot of vegetarians the like the logical ethical conclusions are the main reason but probably not for as many as as like the guilt related reasons so that's kind of where i'm coming from and i mean right now i'm i would probably be more about like the rational perspective but there's definitely an emotional aspect to that as well okay justin Yeah, for me personally, no one pressured me into it at all. I think in my case, it was my own guilt about what I was reading and seeing that made me want to be a vegan or vegetarian. I actually don't think that our society has enough available media to us in regards to how animals are treated and how healthy a vegan lifestyle can be and the differences in long-term health between a lacto-ovo-vegetarian, vegan, and meat-eater. That being said... I think if I didn't want to be vegan or if I didn't want to be vegetarian, it's really easy to avoid knowing or thinking about your food as suffering. And it's, yeah, it's just too easy to do that. Who raised their hand for, okay, Marius and then Gabby? I feel like the reason for that is because, I mean, obviously animals don't have their own voice. So in the case of, say, fighting against the marginalization of the black community in the United States. There is always the Black Lives Matter movement, which of course people also have different opinions about, and which of course by some people is not really as respected as in my opinion it should be. But that being said, the black community has a voice and the black community is right now raising its voice. Animals don't have that privilege, with which I obviously don't want to say that there is like privilege in play. But what what I want to say is that animals don't have the ability to raise their voice. And I feel like it's easy to avoid that. But as soon as you get like into into the thought, what would animals say or what do people say on behalf of animals to kind of like get awareness for this? There, That's where the guilt is kind of settling in, I guess. Gabby? I mean, I think that for, for many people who choose not to consume animal products, the way into that lifestyle comes from having a really like strong cognitive or like emotional construal of where your food is is coming from and actually understanding like the the environments and like systems in place to get that chicken breast onto your plate and i think like when I I think I saw this movie called like The Matrix or something and that was sort of what gave me the kick in the butt to actually become vegetarian and once I knew where the meat was coming from I was like oh and so it wasn't like a question of guilt because at, at the same point that I began feeling guilty I also stopped eating meat however especially in the US there are so many like ways in which you can avoid having to really deal with the reality right because for one like the meat and dairy lobby and corn which is obviously like connected to those it is very much like they're incredibly powerful and and not only are they able to like 
I was really shocked when I read this, but in the 80s, like Oprah did this op-ed or like not an op-ed. She did this investigative journalism piece about factory farming and people were so freaked out by it that big food corporations actually passed a Patriot Act, which was called the food libel laws. So you weren't so which actually suppressed people's ability to be able to expose things about like the big food corporations and literally like in like putting limits on what kind of information you can put out there about these big corporations and like food and stuff i feel like america has like an even bigger problem with this kind of lobbyism than european countries but we see that with the gun lobby but i feel like this is quite comparable well it's totally comparable and it's somewhat like it's somewhat more insidious because it's way more hidden like people don't realize that the whole like got milk campaign was a direct like it was a direct like function uh, like action of the of like the dairy lobby right so anyway the this is all to say that i think that it's really like you have to be in the right place to like make this kind of choice and it's very easy to not have to like be confronted with the information to make this choice all right so i can i issue a correction Yes. Oh, it was. I think it was in the 90s that happened because that's what oh, okay. gave birth to Dr. Phil. That's why uh, he and Oprah first met. So she did an episode on, I don't know how I know this. I just remember this from the time I didn't actually see the episode on factory farming. And she said, I'll never eat hamburgers again. So they sued her. And then that's where all those laws came from. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. And I'm really yeah. glad we got to talk about this. Also, really glad that Dylan brought this up. Thank you. You're welcome. We have talked about vegetarianism for one and a half hours now and i bet that uh, we could continue talking about that for hours to come but i don't think anyone would listen to that that being said i really thought this was a great discussion about that topic and now moving on to another comic book that uh, this time it's not about vegetarianism we're getting back into like the utilitarian conflict this is like uh, questions that justin has prepared for one of my favorite comic books actually of all time, Astonishing X-Men. Justin, go ahead. Yeah, Astonishing X-Men is an awesome comic, especially volume, is it two or three? Written by Joss Whedon? It's volume three, yes. Volume three, yeah. The first, I guess, 24 issues, and then the giant size special written by Joss Whedon and illustrated by John Cassidy. Yes. So that happens in, or what I'm going to talk about happens in the giant size Astonishing X-Men one. It happens when Agani, who is a person of the break world, confronts Colossus who a prophecy exists for in regards to him destroying the break world. He's the only one with the power to do so because the adamantium he's made of is special and can destroy this like core reactor in this planet, which will destroy everybody. And Agani wants this because Agani claims she has mutated from her race. And she describes her race as being a very violent, very warlike people who tolerate and even more so than tolerate even like celebrate suffering in other people she has some crazy lines which i thought made me feel really bad for her and i had never really looked at it through this lens before because i kind of feel like one is supposed to identify with colossus and he kind of has these character statements that are kind of anthems that i think we didn't want us to root for she says these things that really made me think like that children nurse on the blood of the weak a murder is honor and Colossus argues that death is not peace and that him destroying this planet full of people is a bad way to end their suffering. So I guess I just wanted to ask, where did you guys fall on the side of the argument? Who did you find yourself agreeing with or disagreeing with? For me, it kind of changed when I read this. Marius. I actually agree with Agani on this. Uh, In all seriousness, 
I mean, you would probably, as a utilitarian, as a proper utilitarian, you would have to calculate the likeliness of whether this society is ever going to change. But I mean, we don't, we haven't taken any history causes on Breakworld or whatever. But from what we can tell, it's not very likely that Breakworld is ever going to be a society of the values that we share, the values of humanitarianism or the values of compassion. So it's obviously a non-utilitarian society in which everyone is suffering almost virtually everyone is suffering for their entire life and it's just survival of the fit is just cruelty and it's i mean it's hard for us to like imagine such a society yet but it's it's so like defined by suffering that maybe it's for the best maybe this is kind of the argument that um, i hate to bring up factory farming again but i i heard many people like defending factory farming with the argument that the animals wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for us eating them. And I don't think that's a good argument because in some cases a life can be shitty and shouldn't exist in the first place. If it consists only of suffering, then non-existence would be salvation or even death would be salvation. So why not destroy back? That being said, I really understand like the argument the other side of the argument of colossus i if i were in the position of the x-men i would at least think that through even if i was an x-force i would at least think that through it's really like it's a lot to just say okay let's just kill eight billion or whatnot uh sentient beings let's just destroy this entire planet that's a lot at once it's not a decision to make just like within the matter of seconds it's a decision to make maybe even on a political scale i don't know but that's also really problematic it's basically one of the worst decisions you you could possibly have to make but it's i can understand agani okay cersei Sorry. Oh, wait, Marius, a follow-up question just for you would be, what if they went to a planet and it was 10th century Vikings? Because, I mean, you could argue, or I would argue that their culture was similar to the that's, break world. Yeah, but that's what I was saying. You, In order to make that decision properly, you have to calculate in whether that society will change. And, I mean, the Vikings have, not the Vikings themselves, but, like, humanity as a whole has changed arguably over the course of the last hundred years or like the last few hundred years so maybe if we had destroyed our planet like a few centuries ago that wouldn't have been the right decision uh gabby i wouldn't destroy the planet because there's not it's just as likely that you could end it's just as likely that you could end all the suffering by this destroying the, the planet as it is that you could find a way to intervene in the planet Yes, that's a good that's really a good answer. And I think that I would prefer to try to intervene as opposed to just destroy. Because I really hope that this is not an offensive comparison and also I have I and I understand that you know this is very serious matter and stuff, but I have been having a lot of conversations with some friends who are very inflammatory and like taking a controversial view to in the for the sake of debate about like basically the sort of quagmire that is our involvement in the middle east and like sharia law and but um i think like a lot of times people are saying the argument is like you know why should we allow societies in which like women are oppressed and like they're you know they're sanctioned acts of violence and this and that and the fact of the matter is like you know in a lot of different you know this these areas of the world were not always under this 
form of rule and in the future they probably won't be and also it goes into a question of like moral relativism versus like uh, being more normative and yeah it's a hard question but in the case that you brought up i would not destroy the planet i was um actually going to ask you a follow-up question which was literally going to be about more of moral relativism one sec Marius. but but the follow-up question gabby is i mean can't we say that can't we argue and this is definitely controversial that as much as we see isis like that that they might see us like that and how would you respond to that i mean i think that this was a question when we were talking about x-force that i was thinking about because like i'm not a i don't support the death penalty however when i it does make me feel safer knowing that there are very highly trained special ops dudes going after isis infiltrating and like making covert maybe kind of like moves that i hope i never have to make in my life yeah how so what the question was about sorry can you repeat it once more yeah it was, no it was, it was just oh that. oh yeah and so yeah i'm sure that the members of isis think of us as morally depraved excessive horrible people who have intervened in their geographical region to horrific effects but i but i think that like necessarily their actions suggest that they will kill us and so it's in our best interest not to be killed I kind of feel like, okay, first off, I'm not a fan of uh, moral relativism or cultural relativism because I, I feel like the values of utilitarianism are kind of objective. It's objectively true that suffering is bad and people suffering makes them feel bad, obviously. That's like within the definition of the word and the same goes for, for uh, happiness on, on the other hand. That being said, it's always kind of possibly harmful to put oneself in a position where we basically like want to bring our values to the rest of, of the world thereby like de devaluating the rest of the world and i mean in the case of america it could be argued that post 9-11 acts in afghanistan for example could be like justified by utilitarianism but what it turned out to be is that we or that the western world partially turned functioning democracy into dictatorships and like how is that utilitarian what i'm saying is we have to be really like aware of these risks aware of the implications that being said i don't have anything against the statement that there should be any society on the planet in which uh, women are oppressed and i'm not gonna let that slide by saying well that's another culture it's another culture but it's still non-utilitarian and non-egalitarian all right are we moving on to do you guys want to add anything no that's that was all beautifully said and thank you i can't figure out quite where i stand because i find myself agreeing with both of you all right so it seems like we're close to wrapping this podcast it's really late in the night right now and everyone just really quick in one sentence uh what has been the most important insight for you in today's discussion anything that you took from today's discussion or anything that you want our audience to know about living ethically about in your opinion justin for the typical person that i'm aware of living in america it's not harder it's not that much harder to live more ethically and i hope that you get that from this podcast beautiful mark Preachy is not always a bad thing. Dallin? Basically, in agreement with Justin, I think just being more aware of your actions in general and the ethics in them is a good thing. Perfect. Gabby? I need to hold myself to a higher standard of ethics. Bushi? 
Uh, yeah, we. I think we just got to be nice, and we gotta can be. We can all be a little nicer. Thank you. That was that was beautiful. My final statement is. Vote Donald Trump 2016. Make America great again. Get your dicks out for Harambe and f*** the Cincinnati Zoo. All right, that's it for... That's a lot to take in. That's it. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Comicsverse podcast. Thank you so much for listening till the very end. I know it's been incredibly long, but I hope you got some entertainment from that. And we all hope that we have broadened your horizon when it comes to ethics and for more comic book analysis, in-depth review and more podcasts, etc., etc., always feel free to check out comicsverse.com. This podcast brought to you by Burger King. And Harambe. Thank <laughs> you.